So I put on this LP randomly picked from my father's LP collection. Mm-hmm. I place the little point on the on the record, and that's what I hear. I hear <laughs> Luciano Pavarotti singing Funiculi Funicula, which is a song that I know as a kid because I'm from that region. It's a happy, cheerful song. It's played at weddings mm-hmm. and and it was kind of like a magnetic attraction. It's almost like I was sucked in. And I don't know if it was the song or if it was Luciano Pavarotti's voice, <laughs> but there was something about this voice, the electricity, the energy mm-hmm. um, that captured me. Oh man, have I got a treat for you all. So I talk about a variety of styles on Strong Songs, but I certainly don't cover every type of music there is, and opera is definitely something that falls well outside of my own personal expertise. But I'm continually fascinated by it, and in particular, by the tenor voice, as exemplified by famous tenors like Luciano Pavarotti and Giuseppe De Stefano. So imagine my surprise when I learned that a friend and colleague of my wife Emily, Luigi Boccia, was in fact a classically trained opera tenor who grew up in Italy and studied at Juilliard before moving to Portland where he and his husband run this terrific yarn company. Seriously, it's called Brooklyn Tweed, and they make like the most amazing yarn ever. Anyways, Luigi and I hit it off the first time that we met, and the moment he began to talk to me about opera, I thought, I have got to have this guy on Strong Songs. So that's exactly what I did. I had him come over a little while back, and oh, wow, did he exceed my expectations. You're probably looking at the runtime for this episode and thinking, goodness, this is quite a conversation. I thought Luigi would come over, we'd maybe chat a bit, see what's what, he'd tell me a little bit about his background, but no, he prepared this whole playlist chronicling his journey as a tenor, starting with childhood and leading up to today, according to the many iconic voices that he studied and learned to emulate over the years. He sat there with his phone and, like, emceed the conversation. He played the music in real time while talking over it, which I've never done before and worked really well. It was an epic conversation, and I will warn you, it's a very long one, so I would say, if you're going to listen to this, just pace yourself, maybe take breaks, Come back to it when you're ready to hear more. There's a whole lot here, a ton of different singers that he talks about. There's a playlist and some more reference down in the show notes so you can keep track of everybody. But there's just a lot here. So I can't believe the depth of his knowledge. And I can't believe his ability to demonstrate so many different vocal styles and techniques. Honestly, the whole thing blows my mind just like Luigi occasionally came close to blowing out my microphones. So I don't really have anything else to say here. I think I'll just get out of the way and let Luigi get down to it. I really hope that you enjoy this conversation. It was a pleasure. So without further ado, the great Luigi Boccia. Luigi Boccia, welcome to Strong Songs. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kirk. I'm so excited to be on your show because I'm a huge fan of Strong Songs. So I just can't (laughs) believe that I'm here with you talking about music. Thank this is you. exciting. You are also, I think, the first, you are the first person to come to Strong Studios, <laughs> aka the converted bedroom that I use as a recording studio. Since we both live in Portland, you're actually here and we're recording in person, which is very exciting for me. And yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to talk to you more about the voice and tenors and, <laughs> and all of this, since it's something that I you know, know about a little bit as someone who's been learning how to sing for the last few years, yeah. but also I don't have a depth of expertise on it at all. And I think <laughs> my listeners share my interest in the topic in general. So yeah, I'm, I'm very excited <laughs> about this. 
Yeah, uh, thank you for for sharing. You know, uh, this interest in the tenor voice. I certainly, um, you know, I'm passionate about tenors. <laughs> you are. And, you are uh, that is true. <laughs> I'm a tenor myself, and um, today it, we're definitely going to have a tenor extravaganza. Yes. Um, I put together um, a playlist um, of some of the most remarkable tenors that um, have ever recorded or walked the stages of opera houses, um, and I've tried to focus on uh, people that in their own ways, with their own careers and with their own recording legacy, have kind of set a standard for that type of voice or for the type right. of repertoire that they specialized in. Right. So they're all kind of the trailblazing vocalists who established whatever the new technical standard or approach was going to be for some period of time. Absolutely. Yes. Ah. And they're all exciting figures for this very reason, because it's almost like after um, they, you know, appeared on um, on stage or uh, recording specific roles, um, they have kind of opened a new horizon or brought a new perspective to the role that we didn't even think it was possible before them. Nice. Um, and I gather, so I want to know more about you and about your musical backstory, but I gather that you've kind of assembled some of these examples you want to talk about in a way that is going to kind of incorporate that so we can learn a little more about you because you as I know, since we've we've talked about your story, you have a fascinating story, oh. and um, your whole education and you know your your musical history is really interesting. So I'm excited to hear more about that as well. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I thought that it would be more fun um, to play some of these amazing voices and, and <laughs> records for uh, for the listeners out there, um, and and kind of um, intertwine my story with these records because these records are really chronological. Logically um, uh, sequenced uh, to reflect um, the the history um, uh, of of the time when I've heard them. So they're they're kind of like plays, so that you go from the first thing I've ever heard, um, <laughs> and then throughout yeah. my whole vocal journey, how mm-hmm. I've discovered that tenor or the other tenor. You've learned the secret of strong songs, which is that everything is much more convincing and exciting when you play music underneath it, which is really the secret of this show. I'm, I'm a fan, as I've said, so <laughs> let's dive right into it, right? Yeah, let's get going. This is obviously a famous Neapolitan song. It's called Funiculi Funicula. Mm-hmm. It's a song about the inauguration of the funicular in Naples. Okay. I am from the Naples region, and... This is the first LP record I've ever played. Really? So, I put on this LP, randomly picked from my father's LP collection. Mm-hmm. I place the little point on the on the record, and that's what I hear. I hear <laughs> Luciano Pavarotti singing Funiculi Funicula, which is a song that I know as a kid because I'm from that region. It's a happy, cheerful song. It's played at weddings mm-hmm. and fun, you know, um, fun uh, street street feasts or festivals. And I was absolutely, it was kind of like a magnetic attraction. It's almost like I was sucked in. And I don't know if it was the song or if it was Luciano Pavarotti's voice, <laughs> but this is what I heard. And I want to give, you know, um, our listeners are chance to, to hear the voice as soon as the, the chorus is done. But there was something about this voice, the electricity, the energy mm-hmm. um, that captured me. And that's what I'm referring to. <laughs> 
And the one thing that um, that I felt, and I was seven years old, so we're talking about 1987. Um, it, it was this concentrated energy that pervaded me and just gave me a feeling of joy. Um, so much so that a few weeks later, I was actually singing along and um, trying to learn the words, but at the same time, I was trying to imitate Pavarotti. So imagine I'm the seven years old and I'm like, <laughs> you know, trying to make this big sound to right. sound like him. Um, and I think that um, that is really um, the beginning of my singing journey because um, I wasn't really thinking I'm a tenor. I didn't even know Luciano Pavarotti was a tenor. As far as I was concerned, this was a guy with a big voice. Sure. Well, and your voice must have been very different from, of course, how it sounds now, but also how he sounded. I mean, at the time, you were seven years old. Yeah, exactly. So my my only intent, my only purpose was, I really love this song. Mm. I really love the way this guy, this guy, is singing it. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to try to sing like him. Sure. So for me... Um, Luciano Pavarotti is really my first singing buddy. Wow. You know, it, um, it's like you get together with your friends and you form a band and, you know, that's, that's the first group you, you, play, you play with. Um, this is the first guy I sing with, you mm-hmm. know? So I, I just laugh when I think, you know, he was my singing buddy because I made him my singing buddy. Right. Obviously, this was an LP where there were other Neapolitan songs. Uh, it's a beautiful LP and all of that. So I cycled through all of those songs um, and tried to, 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 to learn how to sing like him. Mm-hmm. And... Again, um, the natural evolution was that my father thought, well, you, you like singing and you like Pavarotti, so why don't I get you another LP of Luciano Pavarotti? And uh, this was um, a very welcome surprise because my father came from um, a nearby city. I grew up in a small town called Serino. It's in the province of Avellino in the okay. region of Campania. And Avellino is the province, so that's that's where the, the big stores are. <laughs> and my dad went, went to uh, buy me a record, and it was this time a record of Pavarotti singing opera arias. Because okay. he thought, well, you know, you like to sing like him. Um, so I heard this voice now in a completely different repertoire. But I didn't register that these were two different repertoires. Sure, of course. For me... Funiculi Funicula was a song as much as Una Furtiva Lagrima, which is an aria that we we're about to hear from L'Elisir d'Amore by Donizetti. And these were beautiful songs. Um, so I started listening to this um, opera aria's uh, record and learning all of them because they are incredibly beautiful melodies. Of course. This one was my first... Um, Love, my first opera love. You know, this aria was really the first time that I heard opera, not knowing that it was opera. And it just, again, it gave me a feeling of uh, presence, a feeling of joy, um, surprise. How can music be this beautiful? Was this almost just music to you? I mean, had you heard other styles of music or was this just really the first time that music felt like an actual tangible concept in the way that you know music is yeah interesting enough my mom 
was a, is a very musical person. She would she would consume pop music like mm-hmm. like nobody else. Um, and so I was exposed to singing through her. Um, but somehow those songs really didn't um, do much for me or didn't permeate right. the um, did, didn't permeate my sense sensibility. Um, there was something about this type of music that really spoke to me. It felt um, it was my my expressive language. This was a language through which I could express myself. What I was not realizing was that by listening to a magnificent tenor like Pavarotti, I was also inadvertently learning about voice and technique. Right. Uh, this passage, for example, you hear... One of the most beautiful um, moments in the aria is also one of the most challenging because, and we will introduce this concept of covered sound and passaggio Mm -hmm. versus open sound. Um, The tenor voice is not a natural voice. In other words, it has... Um, almost like different gears. You have to work a little bit with your chest. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to work a little bit with your head. Mm-hmm. And then you have to work with something that's called a mixed. That's yeah, so um, what I think of as the impossible part of the voice. <laughs> exactly. And so what happens for the tenor to be able um, to um, fully connect the voice through each register, uh, there are some... Um, modifications that need to happen. And the most important one is the passaggio. The passaggio or passage, as mm-hmm. you would translate it in English, is happens for the tenor voice around uh, E, F, and F sharp. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is basically right in the middle of the voice. It's almost like um, the, the tenor voice is two funnels where you have the, the, the bottom funnel uh, with the point up, and then you have the top funnel with the point down. Mm-hmm. And the passaggio is basically where the two uh, points uh, connect. Right. So it's a narrow channel. The center of the hourglass, maybe, to help Thank people you. picture it. That's, yes. a better, that's a better a better picture. No, yours is good. <laughs> the, they're both funnels, right? It's the same idea. Yes. And <clears throat> what happens there is that you are slimming, you are... Um, Thinning up, or you are you are narrowing the voice while being fully supported mm-hmm. and having an open throat. So it's not a vowel modification, but it's really a sound modification, so that the, you can go up and have a brighter sound. Um, and at the same time, you are not making the middle of your voice too wide and too spread that right. it that it sounds unwieldy and a little ungraceful so yes, to speak my my constant challenge in uh, navigating the passaggio right. is that is not being too open and out of control and and that is a challenge for every tenor mm-hmm. and it's an eternal challenge i don't <laughs> think anyone ever really can say you know i've i know exactly what to do and it will it will happen every single time so what what's happening here what we're hearing here is a classic example of covered sound. Especially when you hear Che più cercando vo the first time. 
so you heard a very open now listen what happens listen to what happens the second time you hear Ah, that's a completely different sound. Mm. <laughs> and he's opening the sound mama because it means she loves me. But then right after you hear So you hear this beautiful transition between an open sound and what's called a covered sound, mm -hmm. which I would want Luciano to show himself. Covered. Open. Covered again. Mm. And then, even on this very soft note, he covers again. And how do we know? Because he's saying lo vedo, and he could literally say lo and make an open sound. Mm. And I would argue that this is an ugly sound. You know, I, I, I'd be the first one pretty, to say. Pretty bright. It's yeah. pretty bright. It's, it's too right. It's, it's, it's kind of like right in your face as opposed to lo which is much more elegant. So this is not just a way of being efficient vocally because the covered sound and the passaggio technique is mm -hmm. a way to gain efficiency, but it's also a way to gain line and phrasing and bel canto. So this is what I was accidentally or inadvertently <laughs> learning by singing along with Pavarotti and learning these things, you it's know, so learning it, these songs. It's so interesting because, you know, you're, these are all very technical terms, and they're the kinds of terms you, you hear a lot when you're learning about vocal technique and learning about Pavarotti, one of the greatest vocalists who ever lived. But there is that special thing when you're a kid and you start hearing music and you begin imitating it without knowing what it is that you're doing. And it's actually something I try to find again as an adult, and it can be really hard the more technical knowledge I accrue. But it is, it's so crucial when you're just... It's just you and the music. You don't know exactly what you're listening to. Maybe you understand that this is Pavarotti, this great vocalist, but you know, you don't really have context for that. And so you're just sitting there with the music and imitating what you're hearing and kind of teaching it to yourself. And there's just something really important about that process that remains important, you know, 20, 30, 40 years down the road. A hundred percent. That <clears throat> That is what I would call what I call the joy of singing for yourself, mm. <laughs> which I think should be an essential um, requirement um, for you to basically carry on with your passion for the rest of your life, whether mm. you remain an amateur or if you decided to do it professionally. I think you run into trouble when you lose that joy of singing for yourself. There is such purity in those moments you are describing. You're a kid. Mm -hmm. Whether you're playing the guitar or you are singing, you have no filters. You absolutely have no terms of comparisons. No voice placing in your, in, no, no pun intended, but there are no yeah, voices yeah. playing in your mind saying, this is good, this is not good compared to what this person does or that person does. So it's pure, raw, unfiltered joy that comes out through 
whether it's the singing or playing an instrument. I think that is such a an essential requirement. The other really miraculous thing that's happening is that in imitating, you are really um, assimilating um, the end result. And at times, um, what happens is you go this full circle because then when you start studying, you start questioning, wait a second, but have I learned how to imitate the effect without understanding the cause? Mm. And that is, a, that is a very important question because you could imitate a sound, that very sound we just did, and go like, love and think it's good but I would say no that's actually throaty that is like you know the sound is being compressed mm -hmm. as opposed to being what it needs to be but what's interesting is that in imitating in that primordial primitive stage you are also understanding what works for your body and what doesn't mm -hmm. rather than trying to impose on your body a way of doing things so it's very magical. That is a magical moment. It's especially true for singing as someone who began as an instrumentalist. I mean, a wind instrumentalist. So there are some elements of singing to playing saxophone, my first instrument. But, you know, I, I mainly started on instruments and then learned to sing later in life and have been learning to sing now. There's such a physical sort of direct connection with your body with singing. And I would imagine that's one reason that learning to sing when you're younger it just can really help your process because we're in such an intuitive space when we're younger, just generally about our bodies and like physical things like that. It's just sort of, we're a little faster to pick that kind of thing up, not to mention all the, the lack of inhibition and, you know, the willingness to just experiment and sound weird and try new things. Yes. Oh my gosh. Um, everything you said, um, for one, I think, you know, I start from the inhibition and that kind of confidence and bravado that you yeah. have when you are that young. It's We're like the perfect Dunning-Kruger <laughs> when we are like seven years I old. I wish I could tap back <laughs> into that so much. I miss it sometimes. <laughs> it, it's like, there's nothing that I can do, right? Yeah. And then there's that aspect of you absorb the information so quickly and yeah. so fast that what happened for me, believe it or not, um, I hope I'm not exaggerating, but I think that three months later, I knew by heart all the songs on the Neapolitan LP, <laughs> and I knew by heart all the arias on that opera arias LP, so much so that I went to my dad and I said, you know, I'm I'm a little bored, like I'm, I'm ready to listen to something else. And my dad said, okay, well, I'll get you another record. And this is the moment when a completely new vocal universe opened in front of my eyes and presented itself and this vocal universe's name is Giuseppe Di Stefano. Now I have a term of comparison. Now I can, I have Pavarotti in, in, my, in my mind and then I, I hear this voice which completely uprooted me. Right? I mean, you just need two <laughs> lines to feel like, see, I still get chills. You feel like this voice is a caress. Mm. It, it's the equivalent of what in Italian we call una voce pastosa, a voice of pasta. You know, imagine mm. pasta, this 
comforting,、mm-hmm. uh, soft, you know, tender thing that just gives you so much joy. And this is Giuseppe Di Stefano voice, a voice of warmth, a voice of passion. You see, when you have Pavarotti that has such a concentrated electric energy, this guy is just voluptuous passion. There's fire in his voice. At the same time,、uh-huh. there is this sweetness, this painting with the voice. Giuseppe Di Stefano was one of the most consequential tenors of his generation, 40s, 50s,、um, up until the late 60s. And it was this unbridled vocal passion. And you hear it right here. Completely open throat sound. Yeah. Wow. He's like overdriving his voice almost at times. Exactly. And just that we、um, share the difference with,、um, with our listeners,、um, that voice,、uh, if we're talking in terms of vocal orthodoxy, if you were to listen, for example, to Pavarotti, who was a, was a strict technician,、mm-hmm. Pavarotti was a technical disciplinarian. He learned.、Um, His technical principles and really、um, stuck to them、um, uncompromisingly.、Mm-hmm. Um, to, to the point that towards the end of his career, people would say he would kind of go on automatic pilot.、Mm-hmm. That he was that good at pretty much p r e d i c t the outcome of the vocal production. A, a, not,、um, a sound like that, at a, at, a, at a note like that, would be covered as per what we were talking about earlier. And so it would be more like. <clears throat> It would be a covered sound.、Mm-hmm. But Di Stefano is for passion, he is for expression, <laughs> he is for putting 100% out there. And so he just goes. And this is a way of singing with everything you've got、yeah. every single time. And that is really what makes this voice exciting in a completely different universe from Pavarotti. So now all of a sudden I had、um, these two planets, both equally exciting, but I was like, Wow, so what else is out there? Of course, I wasn't ready to move on first because first I had to do a Di Stefano deep dive and just <laughs> soak into this voice as much as、sure. possible.、Um, and everything, even he was expressive, even in the way he breathed. Yeah. Just, and, 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 he, and you kind of want to breathe with him because he just had this way of leaning you into the phrase. Just a wonderful interpreter.、Um, and you know, the thing about him is that he had an incredibly long career given the way he sang. That was going to be one of my questions is, you know, vocal health is a constant issue for me or something I'm always aware of. It's just the more open you are, the more you're present, you know, the more you're kind of. Really letting the sound fly, the less often you can d- 
do it. You know, Pavarotti, wouldn't he talk about, all right, I can hit this B, but I can only hit it, you know, four times today mm-hmm. in this way, so when do you want it? Like, there are limitations. Absolutely. How does that fit into your consideration when you're singing something <laughs> like this? Exactly. Well, um, I think that you wouldn't look at Giuseppe Di Stefano as, as an example um, of vocal um, vocal discipline. Um, there was many things that this gifted singer was. Um, disciplined was not one of them. Mm. Um, what he had, those that a few other artists really had at that level, um, when he went on, he was on 100%. He had a generosity uh, in the way he gave to the audience. I've met many singers in Italy that have, that have sung with De Stefano. Mm-hmm. And um, not a single one would omit how generous he was um, Mm. when performing. And I think that there's something to be said about the fact that, of course, you put out there, you put yourself out there, you're vulnerable. um, And um, if you were a humble artist, all of these things come across, you know, for the audience. Um, One other thing that comes across is when you are giving it all or when you are being cautious about it. You could be cautious and still you know, deliver a, a big, you know, a, a nice, beautiful performance. Um, but the audience kind of feels it, you know. Mm-hmm. And one thing that Di Stefano had, he, you knew that he was going to give you everything he had as you just heard in this incredible high B-flat <laughs> where he's not even trying to cover or to limit himself. Right, control it at all. You, if I were to imitate him, and, and people at home will forgive me for doing this, but he's not taking the sign note. He's not approaching the sign note from... In other words, looking for the ring, right. looking for the resonance. He's literally going... <laughs> it's almost like he's lifting his entire world yeah. to go to that B flat, and that is thrilling. In the it theater. is. I wish people could see you as you sing <laughs> these notes. It's so it's wonderful to see the way that you sort of I- express the note physically because it's very very different. I mean, there's a thing that I've learned as I've you know scratched at the surface of learning how to sing is just how many different ways there are to sing any given note. The more familiar I become with my different registers and placements and that to me it currently is a confounding and challenging thing about singing because I never really quite know which one to go for um and it just it's an it's an endlessly fascinating thing about the voice it's such a complex instrument you can sing one note I don't even know I mean uh, an almost infinite number of ways just based on support placement um even attitude, like some of what you were just doing was attitude. It was placement, it was resonance, the amount of overtones in the pitch. Mm-hmm. But it was also just the way you came at the note, the way you felt it almost. Yeah, and the personality of the singer mm-hmm. and what how the, the, the piece um, speaks um, to them. Yeah. Um, yeah, the lyrics, sure, the meaning of the song and of the story. Right. I mean, I, I think it was Rubinstein, the famous pianist, that said, don't ever play a piece that doesn't speak for you, doesn't speak to you. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, to, to say how, how, how important that is. And there is also the aspect of um, painting with your voice, which mm-hmm. is 
you 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 have a, a palette available to you, which you you develop as a singer um, because you 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 try different styles, you try different songs, um, and so it's it becomes really fun when you start playing with that palette. Um, I think, for example, that one of the one of the exciting things about this Stefano is that he's aware of that palette. For example, when he starts this song, which we just heard, which is Korengrado, it's a Neapolitan song, it means Ungrateful Heart, it was <laughs> written for Caruso originally. Um, you could tell that this song means something to him, and especially in the way he starts the song when he says, Akatari, Akatari. I mean, supposedly he could have sung the same line by doing mm. So there are so many ways. And I think what really differentiates a singer from an interpreter is how effectively they use their palate. Well, and it's a beautiful thing about that is that I don't understand what you just sang, but I can understand what it means. Um, that's, I mean, that's such a big part of, of opera in general is that even if you don't understand the specifics of the lyrics, the emotion comes across because of the musical performance. And yeah, I mean, those nuances, thinking of it in terms of painting, the way you're using dynamics and control and even pressure at a low dynamic. And, you know, it's so expressive. It allows a different kind of communication. Totally. And I think that's the beauty of music, that yeah. you really don't need the words um, to really understand what's going on if it's, right. if it's performed well, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting thing. It's brought into relief by the fact that you are singing words where, you know, if you were playing clarinet right now in a very beautiful and expressive way, of course, there are no words. So you can understand what a person means when they play a line by the way they're playing, but you don't have the words there, the lyrics there complicating things where you can actually add lyrics and then by having the lyrics be in a language that I, as a listener, don't understand, it kind of, it brings into relief that fact that actually the meaning of the words isn't necessarily a part of the, the emotional meaning of what you're singing. I, I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that sometimes that's what differentiates a good composer from an okay composer. Mm -hmm. For example, we're talking with this aria that we're, we're about to, to hear. We're talking about Giuseppe Verdi, one of the greatest opera composers. And this is Rigoletto, uh, Questo Quella from, from Rigoletto, sung by Di Stefano. And the Duke is um, a libertine, you know, in, 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 the, in, the worst, in the worst way possible. He's really a womanizer. He's a duke, he's a powerful man, and mm. he just loves to fool around with, uh, with women. And he takes one here and one there and discards this one here and this one mm. there. And I think when you get a combination of a great singer like Di Stefano and a great composer like Verdi, this feeling that of lightness, of selfish pleasure comes, comes through even in the way... Um, in the way it's performed and yeah. here's the Stefano giving us a glimpse of what being a really a real jerk right sounds like it's a like. kind of caddish performance <laughs> you hear those accents right mm -hmm. I just love the way he does um La costanza tiranna del core de te stiamo col morbo, col morbo crudele. And he's saying something really funny and not funny at the same time. He's saying, I detest 
consistency as a cruel sickness <laughs> of the heart. You know, he's talking about loyalty and, mm -hmm. you know, being being loyal. And so Di Stefano decides to really, I mean, of, of course, with Verdi's help, but you can hear him painting that line. You know, I hate, I detest consistency as a um, cruel sickness of the heart. La costanza tirana del core de testiamo quel morbo quel morbo crudele There is a facetious tone about it but mm -hmm. it, it's also so to the point um, that whether you like the character or not and I don't I do not like the Duke of Mantua the well, character no. he's singing I think it's beautiful music to sing because it allows for that um, um, expression um, of those of those sentiments and even at the beginning I'm, I'm just going back to the beginning because here's what he says this or that they are exactly the same to me mm. but then when you go when you skip towards the end of, of of the aria you just hear this unbridled passion and fire that comes in the final cadenza a cadenza is usually a place in the aria where the singer is left free to to do whatever whatever they want really right, right. the composer says I'm going to stop the orchestra and you you got it yes <laughs> and what I think, right? Yeah. It's so playful. And what I think is genius is that um, <clears throat> in doing um, what is a standard cadenza for this aria, which is... He goes, boom, semi punge. He adds that playfulness. Of course, it needs to be done with taste. It needs to be sure. elegant. It can't be something tacky or. Um, but, but when it's done, it just adds so much character and flavor. And that is how you identify. Um, your favorite renditions of a particular aria or a particular role by a tenor is when somehow the singer, in this case, tenors, because that's the focus <laughs> for us, um, it's when they really understand the character at a deeper level, whether it's because they resonate with it or it's really good for their voice, that somehow it clicks. You know, it's like this role was written for your voice, mm. which is also how an opera singer, after a while, a career opera singer, defines what their repertoire is. Right. So when an opera singer says, you know, this is my repertoire, I'm a light lyric or I'm a lyric tenor or I'm a spinto or I'm a dramatic, which, by the way, not to be too technical, but these are all types of right. voices that don't apply only to tenors, apply also to sopranos and other voices. Mm -hmm. You know, as the words suggest, a light soprano or a light tenor is for the lighter repertoire. It means you need, you need probably a smaller voice, a little slender, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that can go easily up and down, as opposed to a spint or a dramatic tenor where you really need a big sound. Perhaps you don't need these phenomenal high notes, but you can really cut through a big orchestra. Mm. And that's really how you define a repertoire for a singer because it's really when they start understanding what these roles 
are that fit really well to their vocal possibilities. Now, speaking of Di Stefano being not the most disciplined singer, <laughs> I would say this is an example of him singing an aria. Donna non vidi mai. I've never seen a woman as beautiful as this from Manon Lescaut by Puccini, which in my opinion would have been too heavy for his voice. Mm. Um, but I can't help but thinking that very few people sing this aria as beautiful as this. Mm. Well, of course, it's a recording, you know, it's a, it's a studio recording. But the fraseggio, the phrasing, the way he stretches these lines, um, he's just... It's almost like pulling honey out of a jar. Mm. He just stretches these lines in a way that make these lines so cantabili, so singable. Um, and that is such a great quality for, for, um, for a tenor. From the beginning again... You know, one could argue this line could be sung in a thousand ways, and certainly it's often sung uh, like it, like a phone book, really, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or a catalog. You know, some people don't really pay attention to how much leeway Puccini gives them with a line like this. And so you hear, Donna non vidi mai. And here's the Stefano going, Donna non vidi mai. So there's all this, you know, mm-hmm. incredible music making because that's what really what that really is. Right. And so by the time I'm done with the deep dive and the Stefano, I'm probably eight years old and I tell, you know, I tell my parents, I want to hear more. I want to hear more. Um, I'm just so curious. I'm starting to read, um, you know, in the in the liner notes of these records, unlike such and such, the Stefan. And I was like, ooh, who's the such and such? Uh, starting to read the liner notes. <laughs> I, <laughs> I want to hear. Goes. I want to hear, you know, who's this name? Who's this guy? Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, I'm more aware that this is opera. These are tenors. And I'm starting to sing like them. So I'm starting to think of myself as a tenor or at least someone who sings like a tenor. But I'm eight, maybe nine years old. And, you know, that's way before puberty and it's way before (laughs) your voice. But I'm having so much fun. And I go home after school, I have lunch, and then right before my homework, I just put these records on and I really have like an hour, an hour and a half blasting session. I just Mm. blast my my voice out and I have this much fun listening to them. And... One day, I was literally stopped in my tracks when I heard this guy, whose name is Mario Del Monaco, also mm. known as one of the greatest dramatic, you know, spinto dramatic tenors ever walked on stage. Mm. You could hear immediately the baritonal quality of the yeah. voice. Now, this is the first time that I hear a voice and I'm like, oh, I don't think I can do that. Mm. So I had an awareness of this voice is something different. What's about this voice? Well, let's break break it down a little. Mm-hmm. 
right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, a couple of things. Mm. First of all, the sheer size, the sheer volume of the voice. Mm-hmm. This is very physical, very physical singing. Now, Del Monaco studied with a teacher, very famous teacher uh, called Melocchi, who invented a school of singing and a technique in and of itself called the Melocchi technique, mm. also known as the technique of the affondo. Affondo really means to basically um, lower your um, support point, your point of support as much as possible so that you would literally lean constantly entire your full column of breath, mm. which gives you a full body, full throat sound. And it's almost like this entire um, column of marble uh, from the lowest note to the top note that requires an incredible Uh, stamina, just physical stamina. Del Monaco was an incredibly strong guy. And to, again, I hope um, I'll be forgiven for a bad impression of Del Monaco. So when it comes to the affondo technique, rather than going for a high, bright placement of the voice, you're really going for a fully supported, full body, full chest sound. And the difference is literally between what we just heard, which I will replay. In fact, I probably give a little demonstration and then we hear the real deal. Sure. <clears throat> Especially in this repertoire, the Duke of Mantua and Rigoletto is a full lyric tenor. Uh, so as a full lyric tenor, you don't expect a... Um, giant sound because you really have to sing um, up and around the passaggio a lot. And mm-hmm. so p- part of keeping yourself fresh and, um, you know, not tired is um, keeping the voice light, light and supported, right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's really this mix that you have to find. So for <clears throat> something like La Donna Immobile, a lyric tenor would sing... La donna immobile, qual piuma al vento, muta l'accento. But in the case of Del Monaco, who, by the way, didn't sing this role in the theater much, but he recorded it because, Got of it. course, a tenor wants to record La Donna Immobile, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a good seller and it's a good way to display, you know, your bravado. And right. sure thing he does. <laughs> um, his approach is more like... La donna immobile, qual piuma al vento. Now, the thing is, Kirk, you really can't sing like this unless that is your voice. Mm. And the misunderstanding around Del Monaco at times where people say, well, you know, he was a little bit of a caricature of a tenor. There was nothing uh, caricaturesque about his voice. That was his voice. And he supported that sound throughout his entire career, so much so that he was perhaps the most legendary Otello, uh, the, the, the character... Um, of the uh, eponymous opera by Verdi, which really requires a tremendous amount of stamina and voice. You know, it's, yeah. it's a demanding role. But so here's here's the beginning of um, La Donna Immobile. Now that we understand what this technique can do to a voice that has the generous nature that Del Monaco was gifted with. La Donna Immobile you hear how almost visceral every sound is. It comes from the abyss. 
Yeah, he really hits that. What is the, is that an F sharp in the um, the first sort of highest note in the phrase? Right. That um, he smacks that note. I mean, I'm used to hearing Pavarotti sing this just because he has a very famous version of it, and he sings it, I think, more in that lyric way that you demonstrated. The fir- with your first example, this is so much rougher. It it's, sounds like he's—I mean, he sounds like he's pushing at the edges of what his voice can do in a way, and that gives it a more kind of aggressive is maybe the wrong word, but it's a more bold uh, style. It's interesting. It's like he's finding a different energy to the performance because he's pushing his voice in a way that a more controlled lyric tenor wouldn't be. Absolutely, you're spot on. The one thing I would say, though, the difference between a guy with a huge voice and Del Monaco Mm -hmm. is that he also was a master in tapering down. He knew how to bring (laughs) it back. And that was that was what made him Del Monaco. For example, right Mm -hmm. here, um, I'll skip forward. But this very passage that that we're about to hear is a perfect example of how, as you said, he takes it to that edge and then he just brings it right down (laughs) that is breathtaking it's bananas yeah (laughs) and it's really going from 100 to 10 Mm -hmm. which requires incredible breath control but even when he goes down to that 10 do you hear the darkness of the 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 dark quality of the When he does, like how dark that. See what I mean? <laughs> Which really is what his voice was at its very core. And to really hear him um, in a different repertoire which was his repertoire with the type of orchestra that he had to sort of like deal with and uh, the the dramatic roles that he had to perform you really hear him at his best in an opera like Cotello by Verdi this is the Esultate from Act 1 an avalanche of sound yeah it's almost as though his voice was connected to the ground Hmm. a friend of mine forwarded a comment from a Metropolitan Opera Chorus member who had the fortune of singing on stage with Del Monaco performing Gotello. And he r- reportedly said that when he heard Del Monaco sing this role, it's almost like he was ripping off the floor of the stage. Well, and this is tied to the technique you were talking earlier, right, of fully elongating your breath column so that you're really anchored and your sound is coming from really deep down. It's fascinating how big of a difference that can make in this tone that you produce. Just, it's... It's not conceptual. It's a physical thing. You are breathing differently and you're approaching it differently. But so much of it feels conceptual because it's all inside of your body. Like you can look at a piano player playing with a different 
technique and you can see it because of the way their hands are moving across the keys. But when you watch someone sing, usually in opera, especially like I, there's not a lot of motion going on. You can't really see what's going on with their diaphragm and their breath. You can just kind of hear it or even hear it and understand the way that they learned. I think that's so interesting that I think a lot of people would listen to some of these singers and hear kind of similar stuff from singer to singer. They'd maybe notice, oh, that guy sounds brassier. That guy sounds a little cleaner and a little more controlled. There's more dynamic range. But it's fascinating to hear about all of these different schools of thought, these different approaches to breath and support and how they then led to those different sounds. Yes. Um, I think that one thing that you were taught early on and, and, and it's, it kind of comes natural is um, to imagine the sound before it's produced. Yeah. And it really helps. <laughs> exactly. And, and yeah. you know, what you just said is a perfect description of what that means, meaning a sound is really an idea. Um, in the same way, the word coffee is a sound convention to indicate the concept of coffee. And in other words, that is the sound that we associate to that concept. For a singer, it's particularly important to understand, um, to conceptualize, almost to visualize what you are doing because it helps produce that sound. You see, there is a big controversy. So I'm so glad you give me a chance to talk about this. Okay. There is a big controversy uh, between covered sound suono coperto versus gathered sound suono raccolto okay. it's really an interesting distinction sounds in like a pretty subtle distinction but could you explain what the two are absolutely and you know um, I, I can't really say that one is better than the other but essentially some people say well if you're talking about a covered sound then you're really doing ah <clears throat> As opposed to, uh, mm -hmm, but sure. if you're talking, so covered is sort of like more black and white. Like we're going to cover the sound and they say, well, it's like covering the windows with shades or covering, you know, in other words, covering the light and mm -hmm. the brightness of the sound mm -hmm. by basically um, creating more space and supporting, you know, that sound. Well, it sounds a little bit like. Is it removing some overtones from the sound? Is it kind of just creating a, a just slightly darker sound? And that's the way that that's happening is like physically there are just fewer overtones resonating because you're not opening up and resonating off the you know hard palate as much and off the teeth and out of the... Uh, you nailed it. Okay. It's exactly what it is. So the critics of the suono coperto or covered sound would say exactly what you said, which is, uh, okay. well, I understand that this is efficient, but it's a little dull. Right. We expect a little more brightness, even though we understand that you as a tenor have the need for transitioning, you know, through that hourglass or through, right. through those funnels, right? And so what the gathered sound school says is that it's really more about Mm. and let those overtones still be there right but finding a mixed voice a mixed position between right. an open sound and a completely covered sound this sounds similar to the approach to mix that a lot of pop and folk singers take today this is something i talk about with my voice teacher uh, with nevada is the idea of a kind of Goldilocks zone between being in the back and being covered and being super masky and super in the front. That's what I heard, at least when you did that, is 
a lot of singers do go for that middle place. Now, whether I would call that covered or gathered or what, I don't know. But um, yeah. that did sound more open and just a little more natural. It just sounded kind of like your chest voice, but, you know, up higher and, and a little quieter, a little more controlled. Exactly. And I think that goes to explain the importance of creating an idea for the sound that you want to make, you know, personally, but again, it's not me saying one is better uh, or putting, you right, know, sure, put, putting sure. the one against different. the other. Yeah. For me, um, gathered um, suggests also a little more relaxed. The sound mm. is a little more relaxed. It's a little freer while it's still controlled enough. So the difference, if I were to to do back, them back to back, would be really going from covered, which would sound like, versus gathered, which would be mm-hmm. so there's a little more activity in 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 the mask, you know, mm-hmm. when you gather. While it's still not right. so this bright white sound. Um, that's the way I would describe it. But regardless of you know definitions, uh, what's really important is what you were saying earlier, which is a singer kind of thinks in terms of images um, and those images kind of um, shape the the sound. I remember my voice teacher, which we will hear in a, uh, just a few minutes. Um, every time there was a passaggio note, uh, whether it was covered or gathered, it didn't matter to him. He always did this with his hand. Mm. So that was maybe his image, which, um, you the know, image, right. Since people can't see, what are you doing with your hand? Uh, how would you describe this gesture? It's kind of like, it's like you're holding a big knob and then turning it over. Exactly. Your hand is kind of going over the top of something circular, which is literally, in my opinion, it's, it's the, the equivalent of saying, ah, so going mm-hmm. from, There's this kind of like putting a um, a dome over the note so that right. the note doesn't go wild. Just to say these these are really important concepts. But when it comes to um, techniques and the results, you know exactly what works for you because in that pure, raw, innocent phase where you just sing for the joy of singing for yourself, you're also kind of trying things and seeing how they make you feel. And for example, I know, I knew right away that I do not have the voice nor the personality of a Delmonico. And that technique <laughs> made me very tired. And I was like, you are Delmonico and bless you for this beautiful voice, <laughs> but this is not going to work for me. What I think, what I thought was going to work for me was this next giant that we're about to hear, his name being Beniamino Gigli. Beniamino Gigli would really deserve like a series of you know episodes just just <laughs> just about about you know his his legacy as a that singer. That could be something to do down the road. <laughs> I was not pitching. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, you know there's so much here. I I know how it goes with each of these singers. There's a there's just so much to get into. This guy is the definition of an expressionist. Mm. He singing a lament that's called Federico Il Lamento di Federico from L'Arlesiana by Cilea. And he's talking about it's a 20th century opera, so he's talking, he's starting to, the composer is starting to explore with that, that existential malaise, you know, that had not been explored before in opera. Mm. Um, the guy 
wishes he could sleep like the shepherd that he's watching because there is oblivion in in the in in, in sleeping mm. and oh how much i envy him just for being able to sleep so this is a tormented character this is the italian equivalent of a verter right what i absolutely found in beniamino gigli was this rare combination of unmatched color beauty his voice is perhaps speaking of trailblazing tenors the most um beautiful tenor sound that we will ever hear mm-hmm. there was something about it was almost like a soprano voice like a boy mm-hmm. soprano voice um it had that sweet that childlike sweetness yeah. he could go he could switch into falsettone also also known as head voice and then when it came to expressing he could go full chest full throat mm. in this sort of like sobbing uh you know like very mm. he, he was kind of made fun of because he had this sobbing throbbing style when he had to what we are about to hear is the recitativo to the aria il lamento mm-hmm. di federico and um This was one of those moments where not only um, another universe opened up for me, but I also discovered that you could do things with your voice that I didn't think were possible, that you could paint in a way that I didn't even know it existed. And truthfully, Kirk, after you hear Beniamino Gigi sing this aria, you could go, I, I, could, I, could, I could throw a challenge out there for you or anyone, <laughs> anyone else. You could go and listen to the next 1500 recordings of this aria and you will not find an, a rendition that matches this. Nice. This is this is how much I believe in the goodness that we are about to hear. Right away, you're transported into a dimension that I was not familiar with as far as a tenor voice goes, which is this half in half out tone. And how fitting for an aria that's about dreaming and sleeping and has mm. this oniric quality to it. He's saying it's the usual story of the shepherd. And the line is literally... È la solita storia del pastore. But he's not worried about doing anything that is tenor-like other than conveying the mood immediately. È la solita storia del pastore. And there is this beautiful heady tone which he keeps almost throughout the entire reset. This next line is an example of it. Il povero ragazzo voleva raccontarla. Now he says, the poor boy wanted to tell that story. And he goes, Il povero ragazzo voleva raccontarla. See how he holds back? It's almost like he's mm. caressing the sound back rather than Il povero ragazzo voleva raccontarla. Right. He's doing voleva raccontarla. Now, you have to um, indulge me here, or at least let me <laughs> indulge here. 
but the next few bars are, I think, one of the most remarkable uh, expressive moments that any tenor has ever been able to recreate. You cannot hear these lines done in a different way without thinking, no, I'm sorry, but that's really the way it should be, you know? <laughs> All right, let's listen. These are four brush strokes on a line that yeah. a lot of times is sung, and he fell asleep and he goes and doesn't that feel like he's lulling you into yeah. sleeping it's beautiful i mean that kind of expressiveness that's the i mean the kind of control that he has the technical control just allows this incredible like three-dimensional attack to each note right and, and and every note, it just it's just like a wave of emotions that go through you, and then you know to go on with the recit, he keeps this sort of like in and out vocal atmosphere. There is oblivion in dreaming. Oh. He prepares, we will indulge a little more with this aria because this aria really, as I said, and especially G, is an anthology of what can be done with a tenor voice. Mm. And at the most artistic level too. Now he has two verses to sing. So obviously he's going to differentiate. And in this first verse, he's doing a very gradual build-up but when you think he's going to tip over, he pulls back. And he does it so many times, mm. like here. <laughs> the mix there I mean the he, it's not even totally clear to me where his voice is placed he's right? so beautifully mixed between just somewhere in his in his mix I guess <laughs> and, and, and some uh, experts some um, specialists some vocal specialists have called this a falsettone rinforzato mm. reinforced falsetto which is really basically not 100% head tone, but it's almost head tone with a point of chest, right. which is really what it was. Um, when he sings this line, um, you know, just know that up until that point, this line was mostly performed. And and blasted, right? Mm-hmm. And just go for it, right? Right, right. But he's there going. Oh, 
again, a bad impression of a master, but that's exactly what's happening there, you know? Yeah, that kind of sound. I mean, it's that, to put it in a modern context, that's sort of Jeff Buckley or Neil Young even. The, the singers where you hear them singing it, it's like, well, that is really light and very high, and that singer is not, you know, blasting this out in the way that someone with a larger voice would, but it's not totally clear what they're doing. And it it has a kind of a bewitching effect because it's so liminal, it's so in-between things, and it's perfect that it's this song about uh, sleeping and dreaming. As you say, it puts you in a really kind of enchanted mindset. Even hearing someone sing in this beguiling, hard-to-pin-down way, you almost have to let go and just allow the music to carry you off because you know, it's not clear what's happening or what he's doing. It's just beautiful. Couldn't have said better than, <laughs> of course, <laughs> the only in one Kirk. Um, the 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 other thing about him, and and that's what I found so fascinating because I'm like speaking of palettes. Oh my gosh, there's so much there. Is that you hear this childlike quality in many ways? You know, this boy soprano voice. There's a little bit of a crying sound with him, you know. Davanti ho sempre di There's a little bit of that mm-hmm. sobbing, right? So we just heard it, right? Mm-hmm. So far you would consider yourself already blessed and thankful to have heard something like this. But then you're not even ready for what's about to happen. (laughs) Now you hear a completely different tenor. It doesn't even sound like him. This is when he kicks into full gear. say whatever they want about those those sobs but I'm a sucker for them I I just think they're so sweet and expressive it's a beautiful sound it is it's striking that that kind of squeak almost on the attack that sob I've seen teachers use sobs use kind of the crying uh, sound as a way into mix as a way to get people to approach their voice in a different way and you can hear him doing it it's just he's doing it in the middle of an actual you know, performance. Performance, and yeah. in a way that I think is completely pertinent. You know, it's not mm-hmm. completely out of context. And then, when it when it when it adds um, drama uh, to um, to to what he's trying to convey, even even better. Um, in fact, this high note uh, that we're about to hear, uh, it, it's not written in the score. It's a natural B. It's a B natural, and. Um, it, it, it's optional. In other words, Chile wrote a G for composers who want to go. Lei sempre lei mi fatale vision mi lascia mi fai tanto male. But if you want to, you go and sing a B natural. You're feeling yourself. You which, want to go which, up a which third. of course, right? And so he does that. And, you know, for someone who could have done a thousand takes of this 
note because at the time recordings were very very expensive to make so and it was a G he always had the peak of his career legendary tenor the fact that he decided to let this pass shows to me that he wanted this high note to sound exactly as crazy as this sounds She, it's her, it's always her talking to me and haunting me. You know, he's obviously in love with someone who doesn't reciprocate. She, always, it's always her talking to my heart. She leaves me with this fatal vision. There's like a madness in that Exactly. <laughs> Not only that, but I want to point out that many tenors take the approach of Fatale Vision Milosha. So they do, you know, this in basically steps and they don't break the note right before the B natural. I mean, imagine how frightening it must be to be in a <laughs> to be in a recording session or on a on a stage and go, Fatale Vision Milasha Right. Just smack a B like it's nothing. <laughs> like that, right? And that makes it so electrifying and yeah. so painful too, because that's exactly what he was going for. He really wanted you to feel the pain of the character, and that's the whole purpose of the B natural mm. being there. So I would say that Benjamino G more than any other tenor that I have fallen in love with, and there are many of them, we're gonna hear all of them today, is the guy that really challenged me to explore the full gamut, you know, the full palette of right. possibilities, of vocal possibilities, because he could go in and out, sing full chest, blast this, these high notes, revert to a crying baby with a little bit of a boy soprano, you know, child quality. He had this way of, um, there was a little bit of craziness about him. Right. It's almost like, he sang like he was not, like he was a little bit of a lunatic, you know? <laughs> Certainly broke so many rules, like all the great mm-hmm. artists do. Um, and it was Gigi that really led me to the guy that started it all, uh, also Neapolitan, also, you know, from from from, from the same region that, that I grew up in, and um, in, a, in many ways also a trailblazer because... Uh, like Gigi was, because he was the first guy who was given the opportunity to make records that became um, overnight hits and sold mm-hmm. millions of copies and brought opera and Italian art songs in the homes of millions of opera lovers. Of course, I'm talking about Enrico Caruso, the mm-hmm. founding father of modern tenors. So imagine, you know, I'm now... 10, 11 years old, and I'm, you know, um, playing around, having fun with Pavarotti and Di Stefano and Del Monaco and, and Gigi. And at some point, you know, I keep reading about Caruso. Ah, but Caruso. Ah, but Caruso. You know, the founding <laughs> father. But, you know, Caruso started this and Caruso started that. And I'm like, the heck with this Caruso? Like, it's the early 90s, and you're, you've been playing around with all this stuff, but are you studying with someone yet? Like, how, 
where is your musical education or is this still just totally you and the records and you're just having a good time? At this point, I'm playing piano. I'm studying. I'm taking piano lessons. Okay. Um, but I am not studying voice. Hmm. I am just having so much fun um, singing along and imitating, mm-hmm. trying to imitate this um, copy this, you know, from this tenor, be inspired, you know, with one thing here and one thing there. And kind of, I mean, at that point, I, I would say my voice was very much a hodgepodge, you know, because I would copy this thing from Pavarotti and this thing from Di Stefano and sure. this thing, whatever worked for me, you know, yeah. because it was like, and, you know, I would get tired of listening to one and I would go to the other one and then I would t- get tired of listening to that one and go to the next one. So I was rotating, you know, going through these very fast, but every mm-hmm. single one of these tenors was a deep dive. Whereas there were times, for example, period of time, periods of time where, um, say, for example, for three months, where I basically sounded like GE or tried to sound like right, GE. Right. There were three months where I tried to sound like Del Monaco or tried to sound like Di Stefan, right? So at some point uh, I said to myself, well, it's time to to understand what the what the fuss is about. Like, you know, every, now these liner notes are becoming mm-hmm. much more compelling to me because this is how I'm kind of unraveling this whole opera thread. Like, who was this guy? Enrico Caruso. The beginning of the century. I will say to you, I buy the first record. At this point, I'm actually allowed to go into the record store. Sure. With my, with my parents and, Always to a see, big moment, right? and to see what they have to offer. And they did not have a record by Caruso because it was not a specialized opera store. It was just right. a generic, you know, record store. So I ordered one. I get it. I'm so excited <laughs> because, you know, let's, let's also remind maybe some younger folks here. 1990, there was no internet in the small nope. town, you know, that I grew up in. There was no YouTube. You just couldn't type Enrico Caruso. No, no. Spotify. You <laughs> couldn't type it. Enrico Caruso. And go you like, had to read liner notes on an album and say, well, who's this person? And then it took a long right. time to get from that to actually listening to the music. Absolutely. And I was in a town where no one else really was uh, an opera fan. So I really mm. didn't have, you know, a friend that I could go to and say, hey, Kirk, I know that you like opera. Do you happen to have like right. a Caruso record? So I really waited for this LP to hear and I remember I, I just remember vividly that I went home I had prepared the, the, the room you know I just it was kind of, kind of like a ceremony an initiation and I must tell you the first time I heard Caruso was a disappointment oh I know that feeling it happens it happens I was like I don't know <laughs> I don't understand this voice mm-hmm. first of all the record was one of these records that started with <laughs> so I was like oh no you know like mm-hmm. I had that feeling of this is not going to be good and then what I he- what I heard was this really um, dark sound it was a Neapolitan song which I um, did not include in, in our playlist but it's called Tukanunkyanye because mm-hmm. I wanted to hear right away something that He's Neapolitan, you know, this is a song I like. And all I heard was like, mm-hmm. I was like, wow, this is not what I expected. Well, little I knew, you know, being the green kind of, uh, uh, you know, um, uneducated uh, sure. kid that I was, um, so, to be completely honest, I set Caruso aside um, 
almost immediately. And I said, well, it, he might be great for others, but I just, I just, right now, I just don't feel attracted to him. Hmm. Well, what happens, and we can fast forward now uh, by approximately 10 years. So imagine fast forwarding 10 years later, I have now a collection of <laughs> over 2000 CDs because we've graduated from LPs to course, CDs. Yep. I'm a record collector. I am now in love, especially with old live recordings. So the more <laughs> there is, the more I love it. Yep. And, you know, I hear I started seeing the interpretive evolution of an aria. And I hear the different styles through the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, 60s, mm -hmm. up until, you know, the 90s and the 2000s, early 2000s. And just for reference, you know, Caruso was, um, the, the bulk of his career happened between the end of the 19th century and the first 20 years of the 20th century. Oh, okay. um, and uh, he died young. Uh, from emphysema, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, but it was mm. it was something that was lung related, a and so what I started discovering was because now I had this LP with Caruso, was that so many times a rendition of a particular aria or or a particular song by Caruso set what we consider the modern standard. Mm. So it came to me ten years later. That the merit, one of the many merits now I could say of this man, was not only that he had been gifted with one of a kind voice, and I'll explain why it was one of a kind. Not only he had been blessed um, by working directly with legendary composers who were writing roles for him. We're talking mm. about Leoncavallo, Mascagni, Tosti, Puccini himself. You know, Fanciulla del West was written with him in mind. You know, mm. Pagliacci was written with him in mind. So imagine what kind of um, larger-than-life artist you need to be for these other larger-than-artist life, mm. uh, you know, uh, larger-than-life artists for, for them to want to write for you, for right. your voice. Because and then to maximize what you can do because they know exactly what you're capable of. Exactly. And on top of that, you are also at a point where um, that is definitely timing is, timing sometimes can be a huge part. You know, you need talent, you need luck, but then there's timing, you know. Is, yeah, he was right at the intersection of the beginning of the recording industry. Right, that was going to so, ask. He's, he basically overlaps with when they start recording anything. Anything. Yeah. And in fact, <clears throat> he made some of the first records wow. ever. That's so cool. He was, he was the recording pop star of the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so... You know the the recording the recording studio at the time was Victor. Then it became RCA and mm -hmm. all the iterations. You know um, over time, but um, he had this incredible timing. You know, playing playing in his favor. Uh, and so, one thing that I would say is that what was also what contributed to making him a legend is that in hindsight, when I want to track back, okay, so where did this way start? When did this way of interpreting this line, uh, when we, did we start singing this line this way or interpreting this aria this way? You know, the answer, six, seven times out of 10 is you go back to Caruso. Wow. And that is the <laughs> ursatz, you know, what we call like mm -hmm. the original, that is what originates. You hear the record, you knew that that was the first thing that million of current singers, 
uh, future aspiring singers would have heard, and that was the bass line. So Caruso is a, a tenor bass line. That's so interesting that the bass line, of course, would be the first guy to really be recorded because a recording functions as a bass line in a way that nothing else really could before. Because it used to just be, I mean, any musical instrument this was true of, you would learn it just based on what, I don't know, the other person in your in town to play the instrument, they'd teach you how to play it. And maybe they learn from somebody else, but there wasn't a method for a standard to be set because you didn't know what someone was doing 10 miles away, let alone around the world, where the minute they start recording on wax cylinders, you can have one guy record a version of, you know, of any piece of music. And then that can become the standard because everyone can hear it and they can learn it to sing it the way that he sang it and then teach people to sing it that way. And that sort of establishes a new baseline. Which is a once in a lifetime moment in a way but not just yeah. the lifetime of the singer it's almost like once in a lifetime of the art form it can never happen again because <laughs> recording can only be invented once exactly <laughs> yeah so that's really what what's amazing and so what we're about to hear is a famous aria it's vesti la juba from pagliacci mm. so now imagine this is a neapolitan singer making his fortune and his career in the united states this is a neapolitan composer ruggero leon cavallo who writes an opera for for a neapolitan star who has had like a uh, lukewarm reception in <laughs> Naples, so huh. much so that the only time he went back to sing in Naples um, was for charity. He said, the only way really? I'm going to come back and sing in Naples is if I do it for charity. Oh, like, screw you guys. I'm not, exactly. I'm not like, <laughs> like, I'm not coming. You, you can't afford me. That That's was funny. his point, you know? Mm -hmm. So we have this Neapolitan composer writing for this Neapolitan tenor, this amazing, amazingly beautiful opera, Pagliacci, and this aria, which I'm sure many of, of, um, of, of the people at home will recognize. Um, what you hear in this aria um, is not only this quintessentially Neapolitan um, spirit. Um, and let me say something about this. You know, um, when I say Neapolitan spirit or Neapolitan character, um, I think of the Vesuvius. I think of mm. um, this, um, uh, you know, fire under the earth. You know, there is this, um, this, almost like raw passion that 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 can be um you know that, that is channeled out you know in, in in an explosive way that was very much caruso way of of singing you know mm -hmm. in fact now that our you know our, our listeners have, have heard del monaco's voice you could absolutely say that the melocchi technique the affondo technique the full body technique does originate in many ways as an attempt to replicate what Caruso's sound was. Mm. Caruso was also a baritone, essentially, who could sing high notes. So he brought such heft on the high notes that you could hardly hear in anyone else unless you are a Del Monaco or you are a Caruso. Mm -hmm. um, and um, what, what you hear is also uh, someone singing a role, in this case, Canio, uh, of um, a circus um, um, artist, a clown, that... Um, is is made fun of because his woman cheated on him and Ridi Pagliaccio is him contemplating about his miserable condition you know I'm someone who's made made fun of and while I'm while I'm I'm, I'm devastating and, and, my, and, and I'm crashing on my um, on, on my on my grief and so without further ado Well, 
this was recorded by singing in a calm. Oh, really? <laughs> Imagine the power of this voice if yeah. we could still feel every fiber of it what's being recorded literally in in a tube and on a on a wax plate mm-hmm. he's describing his condition as a circus clown they come here they pay the ticket they want to laugh they want to laugh but while you have to put on this show you have this incredible turmoil inside you and so how do you do this well you gotta laugh and you need to make them laugh and what we're about to hear is caruso's masterwork change all of your grief into laughter and all you can do is laugh laugh you clown When was this recorded? This was probably the early 1910s, you know. Wow. I I would have to double check for the exact year, but it's it's definitely in in the early early 1910s. So it's it's one of the very, very first um, recordings. One thing I um, I want to point out. So, because of the way recordings were made back in the days, um, you will have noticed that um, there isn't really. much vibrato, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hear this really solid sound. pianto. Uh, I think that was to, in order to maximize uh, the harmonics of, of the voice, but it was also um, the result of an era where singers were not recording studio recording shrewd you know like they didn't know <laughs> right. how to work the mic you know there right. was no mic so you're, you're, you're when we talk about Caruso we're talking about a generation of singers <clears throat> that wasn't really concerned and I will play an example of another singer from that generation they weren't really concerned about the beauty of the tone and so to give you an example um, instead of going Recitar mentre preso dal delirio e non so più que- They were thinking about projecting. They were thinking about projecting to sure. to a big audience who had come to see them not only because they were great artists, but also because they had an incredibly powerful. They had they had a great amount of decibels. Mm-hmm. You know, this this is was this was before speakers, before right. we could blast our music through there the speakers. There were very different practical considerations. Right. For so, as an opera singer was supposed to perform a level of decibels for you that you were mm-hmm. not accustomed to. You know, from a regular singer. You know, if, if it was mm-hmm. a vaudeville or any other type of music that right. they would hear live. And so, I want to point that out when it comes to Caruso and his way of singing, which has also been really so Caruso has been so imitated uh, by so many singers that did not take these considerations into account, such as 
there was there was no familiarity with the mic. There was no there were no speakers. There was no way of modulating the sound. So what you really hear here is recitar mentre preso dal delirio e non so più quel che dico né quel che faccio. That was really an operatic, dramatic way of singing. And, you know... It's incredible how much sound you can produce, I just got to say. Thank <laughs> you. here in the room. To, and I am... Just, it is an incredible experience. <laughs> and I am a fraction of the sound that this guy could make. Mm. But here's... I'll take here's, your word for it. Here's this... What I'm talking about. And then, as we listen to it, um, I think it's so important to listen to the color of the voice. Just that E there, you know, you're like, well, it's a small detail, but you just can't make it up. That is a dark chocolate sound. There is an espresso voice, you know. Mm. I do think that there is a terroir for voice, you know, a terroir like a terroir for vi- for wine. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that Naples is famous for its for its for its espresso, for its coffee. Yeah. There is this recitar mentre preso You know, this carnal, that's the sound, that's mm. the word that comes to mind. This is a carnal voice. It's mm-hmm. a carnal passion, meaning it comes straight from the flesh, which describes Neapolitans really well. Mm. Um, to that extent, I have to say that I am from a city nearby, so I don't, I can't quite claim the same <laughs> level of, <laughs> you know, passion. Um, but it's so quintessentially Neapolitan, whether they're crying or they're laughing, they're just really passionate about. Um, and then this chocolatey, dark sound of the voice, not to mention the incredible uh, way of conveying the text. Are you a man? And then laughing at it. And he was the first one to be heard making this laugh. So imagine if he had done, (laughs) say to Forzerom. Ha, 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 ha. Mm. We would have probably heard every other tenor going like, ha, 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 ha. But we only hear, say the voice at home. Well, it makes sense. It's a nervous laugh. It's a mockery laugh. He's mocking himself. Are you a man? Mm. No, you are a clown. And listen to the sadness, the authenticity, but also the vulnerability of the line. You talking to himself. You are a clown. Pagliaccio, you are, you are a clown. Mm. And then describing the whole process of putting on the little costume, putting makeup on your face. People are paying to come see you. And then... How do you even do this? <laughs> to the trend, speaking of covered sound and passage. Did you hear? Yeah. 
how there's these moments where mm-hmm. the 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 covered sound even adds to 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 the expression <laughs> And what I also loved about his way of singing Well, this is called a portamento, right? A portamento mm-hmm. is when you have the, the classic, you know, um, uh, descending uh, or uh, depending on whether it's ascending or descending but you are basically bringing the note up or you are bringing mm-hmm. it down. A slide. A slide, exactly. It, yeah. And so you hear Literally, the notes are Timbola Colombina. But even in Timbola Colombina, there's so much artistry right there. And then this passage, which I will replay only because I can never listen to it too many (laughs) times, is an example of a singer who sets a standard. And that standard, in this case, it's not just the beauty of the sound, the sheer power of the sound, the 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 magnificence of the line and how singable he makes it, but it's also the breath. This line can hardly be sung anyone in in the same um, breath arches that that we are about to listen. <laughs> Starting here, breath, 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 there it is. Breath. I mean, wow. those two lines are such a killer, especially if you are exerting that much power. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's the moment of like gasping almost for breath. And, and, and that is just a, a really small example of his incredible artistry. Um, there are so, so many roles, whether it was Tosca uh, or Rigoletto or even Elisir d'Amore or Pagliacci, where you hear this beautiful um, interpretive evolution and you're like, huh, but where did this start? And then you go back to a Caruso record and you're like, well, that's where it started. Uh-huh, you know? That's where it came from. Man, that kind of stuff, like the breath control and choosing where to breathe and even how to breathe when singing is so difficult and requires so much consideration as you're learning to sing and i'm assuming 10 years later you know you're you, over the this 10 year period of time how did you approach breath how did you first start to conceive of it and think of it i was um very fortunate to go to um singing competition in um, a small town in Austria, a very idyllic town called Deutschlandsburg. Mm. It was 2001, so I was 21 years old. It was my second year in college, and 
I studied musicology in college, so I wasn't really taking voice lessons, but I had become so passionate about singing that I saw this flyer of a singing competition where the president of the jury was Joan Sutherland. Joan Sutherland, look her up, uh, legendary Australian soprano. I would say she and Maria and Maria Callas really contend um, the title for queen of the 20th century bel canto. Okay. Maria Callas came a little earlier um, John Sutherland, a little after, was a little younger. Uh, just to say, um, Maria Callas' level, um, less less um, dramatic than Maria Callas as a, as a figure. She really was just a singer as opposed mm-hmm. to Maria Callas who became also like a fashion icon right. or just right. a lifestyle, you know, uh, figure. Well, I saw Joan Sutherland and I was in, you know. <laughs> the, 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 sure. the, the, the saying goes like, you had me at Joan Sutherland. <laughs> I got on the train. They had two sections, the up-and-coming, you know, young, aspiring singers and then the more professional singers. Age-wise, I qualified to participate in the uh, up-and-coming, you know, young, aspiring one. Mm-hmm. So I, I I paid my fee. I got on a on a small plane from Graz to uh, Deutschlandsburg, and I found myself in the middle of the Austrian Alps. There was nothing else in this town. It was just a few houses and then this auditorium. Um, and and there was a, comp- a singing competition going on. And to answer your question about breathing, she um, was so diligent in writing notes for every singer. I just oh, that's can't. Great. I just can't even imagine that a person of that stature, at that point, she was in her late 70s, early 80s. She had already retired, of course. She was being so helpful to every singer. And what I found most helpful is that she was taking really thorough notes of what she was hearing. And then she would give you a score. And of course, I have them. And, you know, I'm... I'm I'm thinking about framing it because if nothing else it's like an autograph document. Yeah, you right. that seems worth keeping and oh, um, keeping out. Absolutely. Well, one thing I learned from from her notes, you know, she was very complimentary. She wrote some really beautiful things, but she said something along the lines of um you need to learn how to sing before you express. In other words, Technique mm-hmm. uh, allows it for expression. Very, very true. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she went on to explain um, a few things that stuck with me, have stuck with me forever, which is with singing, and I would add with many other things, if it's not, um, if it's too difficult, it's not right. In other words, if if you're doing it right, it shouldn't be too difficult. Mm-hmm. But obviously, you have to learn how to do it right. <laughs> and that makes it simple or at least easier. Mm-hmm. And then one other thing that stuck with me was that during an interview in a master class at Juilliard, where I eventually ended up as a, as a student uh, years later in New York, uh, this master class took place way before uh, my time. Um, the the, um, um, the MC of the event um, asked her what were the essential ingredients for good health, healthy singing. And she said, breathe, support, and project. And the guy <laughs> said... <laughs> and, oh, thanks. <laughs> and, <laughs> exactly. However, what was even more um, entertaining for in, in, during that exchange is that the guy turned to the crowd and said, did you guys hear? It's really... <laughs> It's really that simple. It's about support, 
breathing and projecting. And she said, no, mm-hmm, nope. it's about breathing, supporting and projecting. Oh, that's so funny. And that stuck with me because um, it was clear and Pavarotti quotes her for basically having taught her what to breathe, uh, how to breathe. And Pavarotti quotes her basically for, for his success with breathing. What she was saying is there are some basic steps that have to happen. There's a sequence that has to happen in order. Mm. And the first step is you have to breathe. And so I go back to what she said about if it's too difficult, it's not right. I have found that the best way to breathe is to breathe in the most natural way possible. Mm. Because Kirk, in all honesty, you don't have time to overthink breathing when you're singing. <laughs> I mean, I definitely I have time to overthink everything when I'm singing, but <laughs> I know what you're saying. <laughs> but we are, we are, you know, um, we have to sing one challenging line after another. Imagine if you wanted to go for a full, long breath, um, and breathe as long as possible, expand the diaphragm as long as much as you can, fill your lungs, um, you know, do this, do that. Ain't nobody got time for that, you know? Like, right. you don't have time to think right. this much. You had much. a beat and a half of rest before you had to come in. <clears throat> right. The moment has passed if you've thought about all of that. So one guiding principle, and I've watched so many incredible singers do that, you have to make breathing as natural as possible. Mm. And then what is supporting? What does supporting really mean? Because now we get into another uh, terminology um, di- yeah. diatribe here or conversation. Well, it's between. a confounding one, too, because so often support is crucial and people will say, well, you just need to support. But that can mean so many different things and it can be misconstrued. I've misconstrued it so many different ways. It can add a lot of tension to your voice if you support wrong or from the wrong place. So it's one of it is one of those terms that can be kind of maddening because yes it is important and crucial but what exactly does it mean? Absolutely. And um I think that part of the confusion comes from the fact that at times um the original words whether they are Italian or French or German but the original terminology which in the case of opera um allow me to say the majority of these technical words are Italian words like the one I'm I'm about to 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 share um regarding breathing the word appoggio you know i have never heard supportare in Italian, which would be the translation of support. Mm. Uh, in my 25 years growing up there, I've never heard the word supportare. I've always heard the word bisogna appoggiare. You need to appoggio, appoggiare. Now, what appoggio or appoggiare means is leaning against something. Mm. Now, you know, people might argue, yeah, but it's, um, you know, how do you translate this? What you're, re- you're really talking about, you're talking about breath support. Yes, but there are nuances in how you support your breath because if you're thinking about trying to, you know, um, squeeze the air out um, mm-hmm. at, the, at, at, the, at the slowest, you know, at the, at the slowest um, um, amount, in the slowest amount so that it lasts you for as long as you possibly can. Right. It's possible that, A, you start pushing your voice because you have way too much, you know, pressure. Number two, it's possible that you end up with what we call bad breath at the end of a line. So much so that if you listen to any Pavarotti recording, he's done it so consistently over the years that I feel comfortable saying, listen to any Pavarotti recording, live, studio, and you hear what I'm talking about. You hear him going like this. 
Mas me forza perderti per sempre. Mm. That, at the end, right. that's a release of breath you don't need. You need, like an, like an accordion, you need to fully empty your lungs before you could take another full breath. If you are carrying around breath from the previous line, that air inside your lungs has expired. <laughs> that air is going to play against you. There's a story that I heard as a kid. It was an urban legend about an all-you-can-eat taco bar where don't worry I'm going somewhere with this where there were there was beans there was like a tray of beans and then as the myth went they would the beans would you know people would take some of the beans for their tacos and then the employees would go and fill the beans back up and so it would go like a third of the way down then they put more beans in and eventually the beans at the bottom you know went rancid or got maggots or whatever the story was to gross people out but I always think of that when I think about air because it starts to feel like that like my lungs are a, you know a, a dish of beans and I'm eating all the delicious beans on top over and over and over again and then refilling them taking these little breaths which sometimes you have to do like in the middle of a mm-hmm. phrase right yes. if you can't you don't have time to exhale but it is I do find there's that feeling of release of oh I need to get all this air out of my lungs so that I can refill it so that's interesting I'd never noticed that about Pavarotti is singing but that makes sense that that he would do that and sometimes it's so loud i'm i'm, I'm you know I'm in any ballet masquerade on youtube yeah, yeah. just to give a quick hint you know he really goes uh-huh. Because he's trying right. to get rid of those remaining beans, you know? Right, the extra <laughs> gross beans. I'm sure I'll notice it now when I listen to it. I'll, I'll keep an ear out for it next time I listen to it. So that's another, concept in term, that's another concept that helps us understand why breathing needs to be as natural as, natural as possible. And then I would, I would think about projecting, not as an effort to shove your voice into your mask and to make this ugly, uh, pushed, you know, bright sound like, ah, ah. Yeah. you know, it's more like... Okay, um, how do we um, make sure that while we maintain beauty of tone, we also put this sound out in the space, whether it's a hall or whether it's, you know, a recording studio. And I think that the best way to think about it is you, it's your breath, it's your air that is accompanying your sound out. In other words, your sound is a... um, um, a surfer uh, on a mm. on a on a surfing board, and the surfing board, you, you know, y- y- let's say you are a, you are a surfer on a surfing b- board, and and basically the wind is the breath, you know, that right. moves you forward. That's what moves the sound. The wave that you would be riding, <clears throat> or the waves you'd be riding, exactly. Yeah. So it it really goes to say that projecting isn't um, cerca, but it's really cerca. sugar and that's just to say you know it doesn't even need preparation you can just take a breath like that and just go mm-hmm. with it um because you are not thinking about pushing the sound out you were you were thinking about providing the sound with that wave you know and the wave is really the breath your air 
you don't want to overcompress. You don't want to have too much air that you start getting dizzy. So what I always say to myself when I start having problems with breathing is, well, what works for someone doesn't work for everyone else. So, for example, if Caruso is doing... Um, in una smorfia singhiozzo e al dolor oh, if that doesn't work for you then do in una smorfia singhiozzo e al dolor as long as you can produce beauty of tone, it mm-hmm. doesn't really matter. Of course, you don't want to breathe too many times, but you have to be flexible with breath, you know, because the breath is also related to the size of your lungs, the configuration of your body, the type of repertoire you're singing, what is the range that you are singing in, does mm-hmm. it call for a full sound, does it call for a mezzo piano or a falsettone rinforzato, sort of like a one mixed uh, type of sound. So I really want to say, let's stay with Joan Sutherland's incredible, incredibly helpful principle when it comes to breathing. If it's too difficult, it's not right. And remember, the steps are breathe, support, and project. And the way you project is by letting the sound ride this wave of air. It's funny how advice like that is very, very true and yet sometimes feels very frustrating. I found this, Scott, my guitar teacher, was just explaining this to me, I was trying to learn this noty guitar solo, and he said the exact same thing. Basically, I was transcribing someone else's solo and had worked out, because on guitar you can play things five different ways because of the way the strings are tuned, I was playing it in this extremely complicated way where my pinky was doing this, you know, kind of extra note, and it was very difficult. And then he showed me, oh, well, actually, I think he played it this way, much, much easier way of playing it. You just play on different strings and then made the same point of basically if you're transcribing someone and they're playing, they're improvising, they're playing really fast. If it feels hard, it's probably not what they were playing, because most of the time, you know, when you're playing, when you know what you're doing and you're in the zone, it's actually very easy. It should be very effortless. But there's still that middle, that middle, like, task that you have to complete of learning how to do it in a way that'll make it feel easy. I find this with the voice often and or to relate to the saxophone, which works similarly. It's like if your vocal cord is outside of your or your vocal apparatus is outside of your body is kind of the saxophone. Mm-hmm. With support, when you sang and held that note for so long, um, I remember having this breakthrough on the saxophone and realizing the role of air support where right, it was just about I could hold the note forever once I was supporting correctly and project and it wasn't this loud, honky, squawky sound that people get when they're (laughs) starting out. But that took a lot of learning about amateur placement and reads and, you know, how to get everything set to where it needed to be, which your voice also does have to do. It's the thing that I certainly struggle with as a singer. So how did you approach that part of it, the part where you have to build up, you know, your whole resonance, your whole vocal chamber so that it's in the right position when you support and when you sing to make it as effortlessly as, uh, as possible of a process? Is it um, repeatable? Yeah. Can I, can I, can I do... Uh, can I do it consistently? Right. Can I like set it up, put this here, this here, this here, and then here we go, and it's always going to sound the same. Exactly. Can I can I produce the sound consistently and effortlessly under any circumstance, whether I have a little bit of phlegm and I'm recovering from from a cold, like just like, as a for instance. <laughs> like, thank you for saying that. But or if I <clears throat> were, you know, 
um, in great shape and so excited and pumped to go out on stage and sing this, mm-hmm. um, you start putting together all the ingredients that y- you have in your pantry because every pantry is different. Mm-hmm. And then what you do is um, figuring out a way that um, costs you the less while achieving the result the le- costs you less than others or you know it's efficient for life for for to, to use a better words mm-hmm. and then you find um uh, while achieving though the quality result that you want to achieve in other words you right. never want to compromise or, or or impact beauty for efficiency efficiency is in the service of beauty the, mm. the goal is really to produce as beautiful of a sound as you can um but if i know that what i was doing earlier for example is a line from uh, don giovanni uh, from mozart where he, the aria is il mio tesoro intanto and the tenor uh, has these big f's you know where he uh, goes like cercate 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 di asciugar, cercate. First, I had to determine is this a good sound? Is this an okay sound? Is this mm-hmm. beautiful enough for me, for my vocal means? You know, obviously, one could hear a more beautiful sound, but that's how beautiful I can make it. Or at least I can say, for now, it's beautiful enough because I can start here and now I need to figure out how to support this. Now, for right. me, the, the, the <clears throat> negotiation happens with, you know, can I make it bigger? <clears throat> well, yes. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but you know what? I'm not having as much fun. Um, can I make it um, a little less... Um, um, you know, spinny or airy, so to speak. I'm like, yeah, I can, but then it starts sounding a little more in the throat, like, mm-hmm. and I'm like, uh. so I start with the um, aesthetic result that I want and then I have to build the foundation. I have to build the infrastructure behind this. So when I... This is a, a, a practical example and, and one that I've worked through. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to share because it is true to my process. Sure. Um, so I went like, okay, what I really want to go here is for that feeling of a bell. I want the harmonics of mm-hmm. this F to be consistent because I have to hold it for so long. I don't want like this. <laughs> yeah, as I yeah. run out of breath. I want to hear like this little bell that goes ding, 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 and that it's consistent from beginning to an end. And what I found there was that I really didn't need a lot of breath to do it or a particularly deep breath. What I needed was to let the air flow and to place my voice, to, to, to place my voice in the mask in that spot where I hear that harmonic um, ringing, like the little the little bell ringing, and for me it's really as as simple at this point. Speaking of consistent, um, repeatable, it's really as simple as going. Sugar. So there is this feeling of I can do this um, 300 times and not be tired. So uh, to, to paraphrase, to quote again, John Sutherland, 
it's easy enough that I can replicate it and replicate it consistently. So something must be right. And it feels right to me. Then, of course, you know, you work with conductors, you work with vocal coaches, and everyone is going to add something and bring something to the table that's going to be valuable. But um, I would say to to any young singer out there, any singer really, because, you know, I, I just feel protective of singers. I, I, know, I, I, love all, I love all singers because I know what it feels like. So <laughs> I would say... Um, you do you with your voice, you know, like take whatever advice because it's always good to listen to good advice and to incorporate good advice into your thinking and into your singing. But at the end of the day, don't forget to be you because that's really what's special. I would take a a singer and, and that's part of the reason why I love all of these giants that we're playing today. They were not trying to sing like Caruso. They were mm-hmm. Caruso or Del Monaco right, or Di Stefano, right. you know, like they they were a first in their category because what they really were trying to do is to bring their uniqueness um, to the table so much so that anyone who has a little familiarity with these voices would would recognize them right. on a whim because what they found was that um, the technique needed to be put in the service of their voice and not the other way around. That could be a mistake. It could be a mistake, a fatal one. If you um, have a voice and you are really particularly inspired by a type of technique, and you try to force your voice into that technique, technique is a guideline, um, but it needs to be interpreted and applied to your voice. For example, the guy that I'm about to play is his name is Tito Schipa, and he is. He codified what tenore di grazia means. Tenore di grazia means um, graceful tenor. Um, and mm. it's in the, the, the grace is really um, that the voice is all about beauty and elegance and expression. We don't care. In other words, it's another way of saying we don't care about high notes or volume here. We care about sheer artistry. We care about diction. We care about refinement. Another way of describing a tenore di grazia is it's graceful because it's stylish. Mm. Now, this guy, um, Tito Schipa, legendary Tenore di Grazia. So much so, his diction was so good that uh, the the people who sold libretti outside of the theater hated him because the <laughs> nights he was on, no one no needed one to needed buy it. a libretto. <laughs> so that's how good his diction was, right? That's funny. And uh, this guy is another guy that eventually looked in the looked at, looked at himself in the mirror and said, "This is my voice." I love my voice. I'm not trying to be someone else. And I'm going to sing with my voice, with this beautiful, unique voice that I am. And I'm going to sing in my beautiful, uh, heartfelt way. And you could hear it immediately that he's not concerned about too many things. But man, if he, if he pulls you in, like he <laughs> literally makes you hang from his lips. So unassuming, right? Yeah. There's, a, there's a tone, so humble, and yet you just pulled in immediately. Mm. Instead of going, Oh, Right, you know, with right. that tenor stand, you know, I'm a tenor. Mm-hmm. It's a more vulnerable way of singing. I mean, it, it 
you think of the tenor as being such, or one thinks of the tenor as being such a powerful, uh, confident sound because it requires that kind of power and confidence, at least to sing in the style that most people associate with it. But to hear someone back off and to allow it to be so delicate and, um, and vulnerable, it really has a different emotional effect. And I may add to what you said so beautifully that um, the, the myth, you know, there's this myth of virility associated with the tenor mm. voice and especially mm-hmm. with opera singing. It's of course. especially, you know, with male voices, you know, it's all yes. these big voices, a lot of testosterone, you know, you think like these crazy guys, you know, running on stage, killing, loving, doing whatever, all of these <laughs> things. Unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, um, at times, this is really what is expected of what I consider now a caricature of opera singing, because mm-hmm. I would argue that even outside of singing, virility is not necessarily just puffing your chest. Um, if if we want to talk about, uh, you know, being uh, be, being authentic and and, and really um, showing strong character, which I think is a better way yeah. to really to really describe what eventually virility, you know, was supposed to mean back in the days, um, because it, it doesn't have to do just with sexuality or with sex appeal. It really it really is about you want to know that this person can really convince you that they are a hero in the in the right. plot you know that they, they are they're a, a person of of strong character you know vulnerability and delicacy and the ability to have all the emotions on display that's really what shows you know that those are leadership skills we would sure. say right well, it carries across <laughs> all styles of music too i mean this is kind of the classic swaggering rock star you know, front man, usually a man, but that's just one mode of, of musical expression or even of emotional power or strength. You can be very vulnerable and be very strong. And actually, it can be even stronger if you let that show. Exactly. And that is exactly Tito Skipa for you. And that's why he pulls mm. you in immediately because you're like, wow. He just gives you so genuinely and so vulnerably from the beginning. There is no puffing chest. There is no, I'm going to have to show you how much voice I have. But if you care to listen, (laughs) you know, well enough, I'm going to shower you with some surprises that you had no idea were coming. And, you know, you kind of get a glimpse of his... He, I talked to this legendary soprano, Magda Olivero, who sang with him... um, and when I talked with her in Milano, she was already in her 90s. Um, she said, you know, Skipa and Gigi were uh, contemporary singers. So they were kind of rivals. Mm-hmm. Although they kind of had different repertoires. They specialized in different repertoires. So she had sung with both of them. And she said to me, Gigi, of course, the beauty of the voice, as I was saying earlier. But she said, Gigi had this thing that the minute he opened his mouth, there was a magnetic spell on the audience. I can't mm. even describe it. And you hear it just in the way he attacks this beautiful art song, O del mio amato Ben by Donaudi. He goes like, O del mio amato Ben perduto incanto And there is this feeling of <laughs> come come into my arms, yeah, you know? It's, yeah, it's very welcoming. Mm-hmm. 
sort of like unassuming greatness about him. Everything he's doing right now, it's so difficult to do. When he sings these lines that we're about to hear, perfect climax, not indulging, and there is such an elegance of line. Um, you could you could go so many ways, but a conventional way would go. Or per le mute stanze, sempre la cerco e chiamo, conviene il cor. And making the sound heavier and right, heavier and heavier and as you go up. <clears throat> and instead, what he does is every line is a separate chapter. Every line is a little piece of the story that I'm going to encapsulate and frame for you. So he goes, Con pieno il cor di speranza ma cerco in van chiamo in van il piangermi you can't replicate this artistry you know this is just a way yeah. of it's almost like you are speaking a language but you are putting your own dialect on it it flows beautifully with the rest of the ensemble as well it must i mean the conductor and he must be very simpatico they must be very on the same wavelength because it's fitting in with the other instruments so beautifully too they're phrasing it right along with him and you mentioned another thing you really stole um <laughs> the, <laughs> the thing that i was about to say it's just the sound that he makes sounds like it's sitting on clouds mm. it's so sort of like bouncy and effortless yeah. that you know i was trying to imitate him and poorly so uh, and well, not that I, poorly, I can guarantee you that it's not easy um, sure. the, the way he makes it sound you know when you go to this this kind of um, quiet introspective sound requires an incredible breath control because you're taking basically you know much breath as you can, but you have to pull back the sound constantly. And here we hear his signature virtue, which was the way he would chew the words out. I just want to point out, I know that we roll the R's in Italian, but there is no common thing about what we just heard. The words are mi sembra. Mi sembra senza lei. Hmm. And he goes like, he makes it sembra and how subtle but that's what artistry is about yeah and just hear it again so that we can appreciate it because it's these little details that make the tableau you know great it's a beautiful role I also love how he tapers these lines. Triste ogni loco. And this line that we're about to hear is another example of um, unmatched 
uh, painting ability. Night looks like the day because this person has lost his beloved one and um, he's lost sense of time. He's, he's grieving. So through the grieving process, he doesn't know if it's night or day. There's so much, so so much emotion to convey in this line, which really is written as Notte mi sembra il giorno, mi sembra gelo il fuoco. But this is how you can actually sing it. Did you hear the little pause? No. Instead of going giorno, giorno, these are intentional. That's Mm -hmm. how genius these things are. And you need sort of like an educated ear in a sense. You have to hear probably 45 renditions to then listen to this guy. And it's like, how did no one Mm -hmm. ever think of doing this, right? Mi sembra gelo il fuoco. And then you hear the, the same passage. But even if sometimes I hope to move on and to be concerned about other things, I'm tormented by the thought. So you start hearing a little bit of that. But what will I do without her? And how amazingly dramatic is when he says Ma senza lei Rather than going Ma senza lei He goes Mm -hmm. like Ma senza lei Mm -hmm. Che farò There is that kind of like Almost like on the verge of Burning, you know, and crushing (laughs) And, and And it's so beautifully expressed With his mastery of the words Sol mi tormenta un pensiero And you hear the torment kind of building up And then Pasenza mm. <laughs> So G of all tenors Taught me beauty Of sound Schipa Of all tenors taught me the importance of being yourself vocally, singing with your own voice and not trying to be someone else um, because your voice your voice is an extension and a natural extension of your body, of your personality, of your sensitivity, of your way of emoting. And the fact that he was also such a master of words made, made me discover... A completely different world. And I will share a little story with you uh, about Skipa. I was in New York and at that point I was already uh, studying and uh, taking lessons. You know, I started at Juilliard and then I started, and then I started, you know, doing singing competitions all around. And um, in one of these singing competitions, I I did, I did a a singing competition called Licia Albanese singing competition. Mm -hmm. Licia Albanese was a legendary soprano that died when she was 102, 103 years old. She died a few years ago and I've had the privilege of sitting down with her multiple times and eventually we kind of became 
conversation bodies, you know. I mean, wow. we could talk about singing, and mm-hmm. I knew a lot about her career, and she had sung with Toscanini. She sang in the oh, old wow. Met. You know, she's just really legendary figure. And, you know, one of the biggest compliments that I've ever received um, in my entire singing career was one day when um, I sang... The Dream from Manon, um, uh, Massenet, French composer, for her. And this, um, the, the character, De Griez, really uh, is depicting a, a dream that he has had where he sees himself living the rest of his life with, his life with Manon, the, this person that he loves. The only problem is he's a priest. So mm-hmm. there is a little <laughs> bit of that, right? So I, you know, I'm, I'm singing this piece uh, from Massenet's Manon, you know, this French opera. And, and the character is a priest who's fallen in love with, you know, Manon, and he's he's had this dream, and he's depicting this dream to Manon always, almost as a, 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 a way of enticing her to his dream, right? Mm. And and I'm singing this, and and in the middle of me singing, I have this 90 plus year old Lich Albanese listening to me, which of course I'm like terrified <laughs> because she has sung with all of these people yeah, that we're sure. talking about. And she uttered the word, skipa, skipa. And in the pause, in the break that I took um, with her secretary there, her, you know, her assistant there, I asked him, I said, That's, you know, we, I could speak Italian with her, but I, mm-hmm. out of respect, I just didn't want to address her directly. I said, does she mean that I, I need to listen a little more to skipa in the way I sing this aria? And he asked her and she, and he said, no, actually, she means that you really reminded her of Skipa. That was such a huge <laughs> wow. compliment because um, what you hear in the rendition of this aria by, by Skipa, which is not by any means the flashiest or the most vocally uh, luxurious rendition, is this word of this love for words, which, by the way, um, we will hear it here in Italian because at the time they oftentimes decided to... Um, sing operas in their own languages. So Italian operas were sung in French and vice versa. So mm-hmm. Skiba recorded this in Italian. Um, the, the title of the aria is Enfermant les yeux, but we're really listening to uh, O Dolce Incanto, which is the Italian version. O Dolce Incanto a cui sempre agongo Essere in due in and you could take dictation pretty much. I mean, if you if you just have a basic knowledge of Italian, you could listen to this guy sing and you could just write down the words. Oh, dolce sogno a cui sempre agogno Essere in due, in due, soltanto Si, ma no Nell'entrare ho fatto appunto un sogno. This clarity alone <laughs> makes you feel like, oh, this is going to be a beautiful dream. There's mm. nothing to hide. There's no sort of like, I'm going to try to deceive you or persuade you. I think there is, he, be, being the character, being a priest, um, once again, he conveys in a genius manner the the earnest nature of the character um, and listen to childlike quality of this si ma non nell'entrare ho fatto app- 
appunto un sogno era appunto in Italian means indeed and mm. I just love that he accents that accentuates that indeed it's almost like as if I said in walking in I've had indeed a dream <laughs> I just find it so charming si mano nell'entrar ho fatto appunto un sogno And then you have this sort of like pattern of the strings that I think recreates magnificently this atmosphere of dream where the mm-hmm. the images are a little blurry, you know, the you kind of have the shimmering. And then you have these beautiful words. And as he describes these beautiful things that he sees in the dream at some point he stops and he says but only one thing is missing you have this like amazingly beautiful pianissimo that you have to float and You can hear one here that is absolutely outstanding. To be able to pull, speaking of vulnerability, Mm. right? Yeah. To be able to go that back, and obviously the trick is to not break the sound. So obviously that kind of, you know... Easier said than done, though. (laughs) But what's about to come is the real diminuendo, the difficult one in the aria. See him just standing on stage. He was a rather short man with a sweet face, pulling this one off. Right? I mean, I want to make a fool of myself. I want to try here for you just to show you how difficult it is, sure. you know? It requires so much concentration. Yeah. And This is even like, you know, fully formed like his is. But you just have to work with everything. You have to basically understand every place the voice is going to transition through as you go from that initial... You have to go from basically placing the voice to let the voice just slowly fall in it at its own pace. Just unbelievable. And the reason why we do these things and they're kind of expected these days is because people like him, people like Tito Schipa, right. created the standard for us, right. you know? And they he set was the bar pretty high. And see, so he was the moment I realized I am a um, light lyric tenor, and so I'm going to focus on beauty of tone. So I just 
went down the rabbit hole of all the tenors that had a sweet sound. And, you know, I, I just fell in love with many of them. But I got to say, there is one guy and I had endless, endless arguments with other friends of mine, you know, <laughs> tenors or opera singers. Some love him, some hate him. He's not a super famous tenor. Only real, like, you know, sector people, you know, industry okay. people would know him. His name this is, is Gianni, his name is Gianni Poggi. Um, I just think that this voice does something for me. This voice does the same thing as eating two or three spoons of Nutella out of the jar for me, you know? <laughs> it just gives me all the sugar I need. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, oh, man, you know, um, this this is like sweetness turned into voice. His voice was rather big. One could argue that his taste at time was a little provincial because mm -hmm. he wasn't much for nuances. But one thing that is undeniable, there isn't a a single sound coming out of this guy's voice that isn't sweet. And I will also say something else for the knowledgeable listeners out there. <laughs> Some of you might find his uh, sound a little throaty, um, but I think that that actually becomes an asset in his case mm. because it just rounds, rounds the sound up in a way that just, um, you know, just makes the, the sound rounder and um, a little more... Um, just a little more harmonic, you know? Just there, you hear this, you could go, cello, or you could go, cello, mm. and then you hear Gianni Poggi, he goes like, again, bad impression, but <laughs> I'm going to try to convey the, the concept. So you could hear there's a little bit of laryngeal sound, yeah. but it's just so warm and it's so inviting. Um, and then you hear, you hear it again and you're like, oh, it is beautiful. The other thing mm. I liked about him, I don't know if um, it makes sense to you, but he does. You don't really hear the passaggio with him. He probably has such a low larynx that when he goes up, you hear. Mm. He always kept the larynx so low that yeah. you really don't hear the actual cover right. or gathering. <laughs> you <laughs> right, you really you hear the sound, but then the sound can get really exciting. Now, this is a particularly arousing moment for Enzo, the character of La Gioconda by Ponchielli, because he's basically saying, saying, come, come to me. You know, it's it's, it's the, the hour of passion. Vieni al bacio, come to my kiss. And come to the hour of love, della vita e dell'amor. You know, this is the time of, for life and for love. Just love this section. I'm not going to ruin it by singing over him. Mm. 
to carry the sweetness up yeah. there and up to a B flat it, again a little laryngeal but it's like yeah. that kind of keeps him in this roundness mm-hmm. and, and that is an example of a tenor that wasn't really abiding, for example, by the, the classical standards of gathered sound or a fondo technique, or he was a full lyric tenor. In fact, towards the end of his life, he kind of became more of a lyrico spinto, so a, um, basically um, a, a, a full lyric with, with, with a booster, you know, included in it, with a little boost mm-hmm. in it. Um, but he just had this roundness and that kind of you know goes to saying these are the voices that um i relate to you know i have to say with hopefully i can say this with incredible modesty meaning these are the people that i've aspired you know to imitate not the people that i sound like you know Uh, these are the people that i've considered okay these these people are um in a in a type of repertoire in a type of vocal production that resembles mine um if we're talking about for example Giacomo Lauri Volpi the guy that really launched Nessun Dorma as I hit you may think that Pavarotti did it but mm-hmm. this guy is the guy that pretty much Puccini had in mind when he wrote oh, Calaf oh okay interesting so when you hear Nessun Dorma and you all go crazy listening to the Vincero Vincero this is the guy <laughs> And you can hear right away that squillo. Squillo is the Italian word for ping. It's a very vertical sound, and it's very... (laughs) It's a concentrated trumpet, which makes sense, and you'll hear it especially once he he starts going up. It's a trumpet-like sound, it's very vertical, and it's, there's a lot of squillo. Wow, yeah. And you hear it even... He could sing... But he goes... Il nome mio nessun saprà no no. It's literally like out of the of the trumpet um, mm-hmm. air air channel, and then here he literally becomes a trumpet. And that kind of concentrated sound gave him tremendous harmonics in his upper register, so much so that they say. Um, I've read this story many times. You always have to distinguish between what's <laughs> true and what's anecdotal. Sure. But they say that he was the last guy that made the chandelier La Scala uh, tremble mm. with his um, harmonics. Um, and you can also appreciate him for his incredible technical prowess. My voice teacher, whom I will introduce very, very soon, um, went for a voice lesson with him. And at some point singing a G 
my voice teacher opened the sound and apparently right, uh, Lauri Volpi started banging on the piano and saying <laughs> Raimondi a G open <laughs> never and he literally gave really? him a fart to say don't ever open a G you could see why because his sound is so vertical right. and in line it's an aligned sound but also very forward very cutting and which makes sense because Turandot has this huge yeah. you know orchestra the famous B which comes. he really was the only one to hold a little longer than Puccini wrote It's laser focused. I mean, you can definitely imagine how that would carry over a large ensemble. And I can um, um, invite anyone to go on YouTube and um, enter his name, Lauri Volpi, Giacomo Lauri Volpi, Nessun Dorma. And there is a clip of him. I believe he's either 68 or 72 years old. He's already retired and he's invited to a gala concert and he decides to perform Nessun Dorma. Um, <laughs> uh-huh the audience it becomes delirious at the end. I've never seen a standing ovation like that. Uh, not in person, not right. on YouTube, just to say the type of power that his voice had. And he is what we would call a, he's a type of tenor. He's a lyrico spinto. He has that cutting uh, quality. You know, there's almost like a, a springy quality to his voice. These incre- it's, it's incredibly concentrated. Uh, one could say that Pavarotti is kind of the sweeter version of Lauri Volpi, but there are uh, these tenors are called um, tenori di lama. A lama is a sword, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it's sort of like a way of saying the voice is so squeal- squillante, it's so pingy that just cuts right. through the cuts orchestra. Through everything. And the guy that, um, that comes next, whose name is um, Mario Filippeschi, brought that quality kind of a notch further. So you have someone like Lauri Volpi who really kind of uh, paves the way for a type of tenor that's particularly exciting to the audience. Uh, Although Lauri Volpi had a great critical acclaim, Mario Filippeschi was one of those tenors who had a love affair with the audience and not so much with the critics. And the Mm. reason why the critics didn't like them is because these tenors kind of indulged the audience with Mm. the, you know, what does the audience want from a tenor? High notes, really high decibels, (laughs) you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, simplification, but there is, there is an element of truth there. And while Lauri Volpi, Lauri Volpi definitely gave that, um, there was also a sense of style about him. You know, he was, he was a very religious man, uh, very old school. Um, with Mario Filippeschi, imagine a very buoyant, ebullient um, voice, kind of with an explosive quality on the top, with this, um, uh, you know, ping, with this um, incredibly resonant uh, voice who could... Uh, who could who could just you know catapult these high notes into the audience, which are you know in, so exciting? So he just drove audiences to their feet. Um, and honestly, I'm a huge fan of his because <laughs> I call him. Um, he's like tenor dopamine. You know, like yeah, yeah. when I when I feel like I need some high decibels, he's like the equivalent of what. Someone who likes rock, you know, what, what would someone who likes rock put, put on when they really like, want to, you know, right, wanna, they just want to listen to Metallica. Exactly. Maybe something, something like that. Right. Yeah. So he's like my Metallica version of a tenor. Um, you could hear it right away. 
There is a resonance yeah. and a ping to his voice. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's so cut through that you're like, how does he do it? Um, and in this area in particular, which is Giorno di Pianto from Verdi's I Vespri Siciliani, um, there's this so beautiful recit which we can skip um, um, and go straight to the aria. That voice is also capable of beautiful tones, expressive and sincere, but still locked into the mask. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It never comes out of the mask. No, it's true. It's almost like, ah, ah, yeah. ah, the whole time, right? And it's also one of those rare voices. This is a live recording. It's also one of those rare voices that the higher it goes, the more it grows. You know, it's almost like, the higher it goes, the more it blooms. Right. The reason why I chose this particular recording of him is because not only I wanted to showcase that quality of a full lyric voice with a lot of a lot of ping, you know, a lot of brilliance in the voice, but also because I think, and I would like to be challenged on this, <laughs> that what we hear in this recording, this fantastic recording anyway, uh, is the most exciting B-natural that's ever been recorded. Yes, I said it. It's the most exciting B-natural that's ever been recorded. And we're about to hear it. Which also showcases that brilliance we're talking about. If anyone can find me, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm certainly not going to challenge you on that. It's the room, it's the arrangement, it's the moment in time. It's not just the note and the way he's singing. It's everything in that moment. That's that's a hell of a moment. That's incredible. And, and it's a live performance. And, you know, that was what made, made, made him exciting. Uh, for example, if you wanted to hear what a, a C-natural sounded by him, we can hear... Bianca Alpar di Neve Alpina from um, Meyerbeer's um, Les Hugo Not. It's a French opera, but in this case he's singing in Italian. You know, it's a viola and tenor aria, which I find very rare. So you hear a duet between the viola and the tenor. That's nice. Very rare, right? Yeah. 
and then you have this beautiful back and forth and then the viola literally accompanies the whole aria because as you go into the aria See what I mean? Like the minute he goes into his upper register, yeah. there's like the decibel level just goes up. It really and cranks. Then by the end, he sings a high C, which is written for a tenore contraltino, so for a French tenor, which is supposed to be more falsetto than real chest. But he's like, I got it in my chest, so I'm just <laughs> yeah. gonna get it out, get it out of my chest. Ladies and gentlemen. And that was an example of a tenor that really um, start, you know, starting with Lauri Volpi and Filippeschi, you had these tenors like uh, like them or like um, Franco Corelli that can be heard here singing Andrea Chenier. I would almost say freakish voices, meaning mm-hmm. meaning you should never try to imitate anyone if not for study purpose to see if it works and what not and what doesn't work for your voice but these guys you know the the, the the that I'm playing today are definitely guys that you don't want to imitate because they had a freakish nature right their vocal folds could just do certain things exactly and Franco Corelli was absolutely one of them one of the most outstanding lyrical spinto tenors of his of his of his generation probably beyond and after yeah, really of all time and here you you hear him in the improviso from Andrea Chenier by Giordano. It's such a beautiful, touching moment because the, the, the Andrea Chenier is a poet and he's in love with Maddalena, but she just made fun of love as, as a whole. And he's like, you don't make fun of love, right? And so he asks her, like, do you know love? Because if you knew love, you wouldn't make fun of her. And so there's this beautiful... Recitativo, this beautiful recit at the beginning. Um, And then the aria starts. And then you hear this round and warm voice, but at the same time, so powerful. The power that this man could produce with his voice was legendary. And we'll hear it in a second when he goes up to the B flat, like like we like to say in in, in the jargon. It's a house. It's not a high a high note. It's a house. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, yeah. to give a little bit of perspective, he's not doing. He's going. It's almost like someone is pulling his, you know, his jaw. There's so much space underneath a not extremely loud note. There's so much presence in in a sound like that in the theater, and you know, he was a phenomenal. you know, Cavaradossi in Tosca, he was phenomenal in Andrea Chenier. Um, but again, it's a type of voice. Now, and Corelli is also known, speaking of vocal techniques, um, as a guy who 
really made this technique about um, uh, low larynx. So um, yeah. his his whole approach was that he knew that he wouldn't his career wouldn't last too long. In fact, he sang for roughly twenty years, but the last five years were rough for him. And he knew that this was going to take a toll on his voice. But he decided he was an athlete. He was a very a strong. Um, you know, very physically strong. And he decided that he was going to take this low larynx approach. Again, an approach that has been imitated by so many singers who did not have his starting material, you know, right. his voice, <laughs> his natural talent to start with. Yeah, as with. one of them, I can, I can relate to that. <laughs> well, two of us. But here's the, the, the deal about the low larynx. You, you, can hear, you can hear it right at the beginning, right? When... Especially here. And the two lines that are coming up. Right there. Mm. So what he's doing is. really pushing it down exactly and of course you know maybe it worked for the type of um face that he had for for Mm. for the shape of his chest but he really was the one that kind of introduced this low larynx uh technique which worked really well for him made him the legendary singer that he is um but unless you have that um, starting um, the, the, the natural talent to start with, it could be also a way to manufacture your voice. Yeah, and and that and that could be a little bit of. But he's one of my heroes because he kind of went into this way of singing, knowing that it was going to shorten his career. But that's exactly the type of sound that it was him. That's the type of sound that he wanted to make, and that's the type of sound yeah. that excited. Thousands and thousands of people. Performances by Corelli. He was a nervous wreck. There are stories <laughs> of his wife having to literally push him on stage because he wouldn't <laughs> go on stage. Mm-hmm. And he had that nervous energy. But everyone, I've never had the privilege or the honor of uh, hearing live, but hearing him live. But everyone who's heard him uh, said there was nothing like him. There will never be nothing like him. Um, after that, um, because he was one of a kind, and he kind of changed the modern style, the modern way we sing, we sing that repertoire. Now, a guy instead that I got to know really, really well, that I got to spend a lot of time with, was this guy, also known as Gianni Raimondi, my beloved teacher, whom I met when I was 23 years old, as I was finishing my master's in musicology. And I just went to him to be heard, and the rest is history. But this is... This is one of the finest singers of his generation and a master of passaggio. Pavarotti quotes Raimondi as the ultimate example of beautiful passaggio, beautifully negotiated passaggio, beautiful covered sound. Thank 
not only he had this beautiful this beautiful tone just full juicy lyric sound lyric sound but he also had this incredibly easy top which we hear in this recording of Ateocara from Bellini's Puritani this is a live recording by the way where the tenor sings a C sharp multiple to be <laughs> Sings a C sharp too. <laughs> this is just doesn't just touch it and leave it. And trust me when I say that with most tenors, a C sharp is basically like a chicken screaming. For yeah. example, see what I mean? Like yeah, if you're not warmed up and you're yeah. not going up there, this sounds terrible. It's like really screaming out of your lungs. Mm-hmm. But he had that ease. Um, and I wanted to show that. Uh, but he was also a phenomenally uh, technical singer, which we can hear in this aria, Ella mi fu rapita from Verdi's Rigoletto, which is an aria about passaggio. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, this aria is quoted by Lauri Volpi, by Pavarotti, by Gianni Raimondi himself as the most difficult uh, tenor aria to sing because Verdi must have hated uh, the tenor in this opera because right, he really insulted him at some centered point it. In his yes, life. <laughs> he centered it around the passaggio. So the the premise is very easy. Uh, the duke, this lip, you know, this womanizer who you know plays with women left and right, all of a sudden happens to fall in love, and the the, the girl that he's falling in love with has been taken away from him. This is what the aria is about. Now here is a great example of covered sound. It's done mm. so smoothly that yeah. it, you hardly even realize it. But he's doing. See how yeah. those three notes go into a covered position and then he comes down. And then from now on, it's basically passaggio exercise here, passaggio exercise <laughs> there. I'll give a few a few heads up. And then he goes, Those are two examples of covered sound right there. Instead of potter, right. Same. Mm-hmm. And then the most beautiful one is really the beginning of the aria. The beginning of the aria, also known as Parmi Veder Le Lagrime, and I do Parmi Veder Le Lagrime on purpose. Is because it says, I, I almost saw tears coming down her face. The word is parmi, mm-hmm. but it's an F sharp. <laughs> a tenor who has been laughed at by uh, Lauri Volpi for singing an open G or an open F sharp or F, uh-huh. because you know you don't sing open sounds during the passaggio, you gather them, you cover them, is not going to sing parmi <laughs> because it's too white. It's too it's 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 sort of like not 
noble that just doesn't fit into the rest of the line. So what we, we will hear now is a perfectly covered F sharp, which instead of sounding like par, parmi, sounds like por me. Yeah. In reality, he's really going Por me. He's making a non-distinctive vowel there because he has three options. One is to go par me. Mm-hmm. One is to cover and go por me. Or the other one is to gather the sound, you know, and to right, and to, to right. slender it and go like por me. <laughs> Does, that, does mm-hmm. it make sense? Is it, it does, and I always, I just always laugh uh, when someone who sings as wonderfully as you do demonstrates those things so effortlessly because they're all so very difficult in a certain way. Like if you haven't learned how to sing those notes to begin with, <laughs> hearing them all done, I mean, they all sound great to me. And I also understand how one can be maybe easier to sing or have a more controlled sound than the other. Um, well, I you, just sometimes <laughs> laugh because I hear them all. I'm like, well, that sounded great. That sounded really great. And wow, that one that sounded great too. <laughs> well, th- th- thank you. I, 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 I hope that all audiences are as forgiving as you are. I, I just think that you you make a choice, you know, that that is also the sound that's going to work in the economy of the piece. So much so that then you have exactly the same note on exactly the same vowel being repeated one line after this. So you go, Now, that's really interesting because both are pa e qua, but what we really hear is and that is an F sharp. And in the economy of the piece, that is what is going to allow you to sing the killer finale. So this, this piece has a finale that is absolutely a killer. Um, it's a B flat, but every tenor tells you that it feels like a C or a C sharp <laughs> because in the way Verdi uh, structures it, he keeps making right. the voice going up and up and up. And so your breath risks, you know, of getting shallower and shallower. And by the end, you get to that. B, by, by the time you get to the B flat, you're absolutely dead. <laughs> There's no tenor that will say I made it to that B flat safely. Mm-hmm. It's always like a lottery in a sense, right? <laughs> Now we hear another covered sound on Quando, right here. Mm-hmm. Now what's really beautiful is this section. There's usually a minor key section in Verdi's arias. And this is the one in Ella mi fu rapita. Oh, okay, yeah. Exactly, right? What I love, 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 love. I mean, speaking of trailblazers, rest assured that Pavarotti is absolutely copied from him and whoever else, you know, had done that line like that. That is right there on the passaggio. You hear how (laughs) kind of edgy that is. Like it's even as I do it, it's like ah, this is a little too edgy. Like I just can't Mm -hmm. go that far. You've got it under control, but yeah, that is very difficult to do. But it is, and instead we hear. Mm 
ti cora fanciulla so this whole section this whole section yeah. is covered sound and that's what's remarkable yeah Oh. Now that is priceless. Yeah, wow. He goes, Potea soccorreti. So he's saying, Ay, Che vorria con l'anima. The word is, Farti qua giù beata. So technically, he, you should hear. If you didn't do anything, if you didn't cover the sound or gather it, you should hear. Mm-hmm. It's just absolutely wild. You know, mm-hmm. you, you you don't have any, any control over right. this kind of sound. It's just like, ah, open, white, you know, widespread. So essentially, he goes like, so there's like that it's sort of like ease e- controlling exactly it, yeah. that sort of like well we we need to gather here we need to mm-hmm. make it go through the funnel right <laughs> And even coming down from You could have as an option As opposed to And now prepare for this insane, <laughs> insane hand that Vedi dealt to the tenor And now sing a B flat. Wow. <laughs> it would be great in and of itself. Have you noticed that right before, and I have to point this out because it's such a classy detail, but right before the B flat, the line goes, So there is a a yangeli right before the B flat. Mm-hmm. He can't afford to leave that sound open because it's not economical. He needs all the breath and all the support in order to sing that. Mm-hmm. And so you really hear I just want you, you to just hear that detail because <laughs> that detail is killer. Right here. See? Yeah. He's got to keep it. 
Lesfere, the difference hole, between Lesfere A, Lesfere A, Lesfere O. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and then the B flat is just an explosion, which is the reason why tenors are taught to cover their sound or are taught about the right. passages because it is what gives you essentially um, their freshness and um, it makes you get to the, the the fireworks towards the end. You know, because composer write high notes towards the end. You know, they yeah, want you to be at the end. At the end, you know, so they they want you to yeah. to make to go through. There's always something you're stressed about for the entire piece. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly, and it's you know it's a natural a natural climax that you get towards mm-hmm. the end. And so essentially, um, I studied with this guy. You know, he what I learned from him was um, that basically. As a tenor, you really shouldn't think much, <laughs> which <laughs> which co- corroborates the stereotype that we all know uh, that you know tenors are not particularly <laughs> but, creatures of impulse. Exactly, because there is this there is this um, ebullient quality about about tenors. You know, there is mm-hmm. this. Um, energy um, in excess energy that kind of comes out uh, through the voice and the roles are written for usually uh, heroes or young mm-hmm. lovers and so the music is always kind of like on the heroic side or on the very romantic side what I learned from Raimondi is humility you know uh, to, to understand that if you have a technique you have to trust that technique because as an artist you can't rely just on your artistry you also have to have the tools uh, to get the job done consistently over time. And so, for example, for the high notes, I asked him once, I said, Maestro, how do you, how do you, how did you manage to have these in, incredibly resonant high notes? And he told me, muso di cane, dog, dog, dog mouth, dog's mouth, you know, or huh. like a dog shaped mouth. And I said, what do you mean? And li- <laughs> he literally, he literally did like this. <clears throat> And just, you know, did like a... Uh, And what he meant was like, you you kind of like bite that note, Mm -hmm. you know, you you just have that bite on the note. Mm -hmm. And and you're like, man, I'm here trying to philosophize and to conceptualize and come up with all of these (laughs) complicated things. But here's this legendary guy who sung with everyone. He was really at the top of his game in the 50s and 60s when most of his career happened thinking about don't think too much just go out there let the voice let let the voice vo- voice go, go go out and just you know when it comes to the high note muso di cane you know dog dog shaped mouth or you know a, a mouth <laughs> shaped like a dog you know i don't even know mm-hmm. i don't even know how to say so just to say that at times you you learn by by yourself other times you learn from others but you don't always learn from others the things that you 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 want to learn from them because sometimes the things they do are natural you know sometimes the mm-hmm. things they do are just part of their package or just part of their toolbox they 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 were born with it for example i loved um, asking him about the passaggio because he was such a master of the covered sound. But, you know, every time I asked him, he would just say, you just throw your diaphragm down <laughs> and that's what it does. And he would go like uh-huh. something, he would go like this and he would go like, oh, and make this incredible sound. And I would I would go like, Maestro, how, how, how do you do that? And he's like, 
This is how you do it. And I'm like, oh, okay. It's not that helpful. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. So you kind of steal um, and take and interpret. Um, ironically enough, I have learned, um, and I, I say this with the utmost respect because obviously there's so much that I've learned even just by talking with him. I mean, you get into the tenor mindset, sure. the things that a tenor thinks about before the performance, the funny stories. Um, so much to learn. But ironically... And I say this with respect. I think I've learned more about the way he covered his sounds from his recordings <laughs> than from the lessons that I had with him. That, you know? that tracks, though. That can definitely be that can be true. I understood. I understood the way he did it. And you know, one could not help but thinking, "Well, Luigi, but you've really gone down the rabbit hole here of tenors." <laughs> and you know, speaking of tenor extravaganza, we think we've been pretty extravagant. We have definitely covered what I've considered the trailblazers, especially when it comes to Italian opera. I do want to mention that in my formation, in my sort of like um, training, um, that have been at least um, three tenors that were not Italian and that I consider trailblazers in their own way. And one of them is the Swedish Jussi Björling, um, which can be heard here singing, singing um, Adelaide by Beethoven, um, a leader uh, and a lead. Uh, and I think this voice speaks for itself. So let's just dive into it. Right? Beautiful, yeah. Arguably the greatest tenor of all times mm. with Caruso. Um, obviously, in terms of style or in terms of, um, you know, being there right at the beginning of of the recording of the of the recording world, he he was much later. He came he came on, um, you know, he appeared on the horizon much later, uh, early forties. The bulk of his career was was the fifties and the early sixties. He also died very young. Mm -hmm. um, he was um, I, have to, I should mention this. He was an alcoholic, mm. and there was something very tragic about his life. But I mentioned this only because I think that somehow you could hear that tear in the voice. Um, mm -hmm. It's a voice that is so attractive. It's so sweet. It's so mel melancholic. Um, and at the same time, there is a beauty that just goes straight to your heart. Um, this is one of the most difficult leader to sing. Of all leader, this is probably, you know, up there with Ich Grolle Nicht and maybe some leader from Die Winterreise or the Schöne Müllerin by Schubert. Um, and it's Beethoven. So there is this sense of, um, you know, German style, you know, that needs to kick in. And what I love about this rendition is that he really goes into it with, again, a skipa-like, you know. So um, in a sense, I feel like if it makes sense to you, when I think of Burling, 
I think of a mix between Caruso and Gigi in terms of voice. Okay. It had, he had Makes that sense, sort yeah. of like power, but also that sweetness. But I also don't want to diminish the guy by comparing him to people that may have come before him because Beerling is his own thing. And um, why? Because he also had a, um, a way of singing that um, I think was I want to I want to think about for a second because um, take your time <laughs> thank you um, so when I think of Burling I think of all the good um, virtues uh, and qualities and uh, good interpretive habits of 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 an of an Italian t- tenor of of the same of the same caliber, um, but I hear a um, sensitivity that is different in the sense that it was more modern. It was more matter of fact. It was it was less um, um, needing for attention and and more coming at you in a in a. Um, unassuming natural way that also made it irresistible at the same time. I think of Burling as a cool tenor, but hmm. not cool in the sense of like cool because he was from Sweden. I think of him as someone who was struggling with things in life and um, didn't try to hide the struggle through the singing. His singing was not necessarily about perfection, even though one might argue that it was perfect. Um, it was about honesty. It mm-hmm. was about um, putting putting the struggle in, in in into the midst and see what comes out. And and you can hear it um, in this absolutely heartbreaking um, lead, and especially with this beginning, which is monumental in capturing the essence of what this is about. that if Beethoven had heard these lines sung by Jesse Burling, he would have said, that's exactly what I had in mind. Mm. And then listen to the first time that he pronounces the name that the lead is named, you know, takes the name from, the, the, the lady that the, the lead is named after. So he sets the tone, as UC Berlin we often do, this classy, refined singing. For one, I just love, right at the beginning when he starts 
just to notice how equal those Einsam wandelt dein Freund im Frühlingsgarten. And then how he immediately goes, Mild vom lieblichen Sauerlicht umflossen. There's that, you, you just can't imitate that. But then in the same lead, when Beethoven starts... So there's this middle section where he goes from contemplative to descriptive. So he's calling about, he's talking about the birds, he's talking about the evening air, the sweet evening breeze. And these are almost like little portraits. You know, every line is... There goes the evening breeze. Mm-hmm. And then he's talking about the, the birds. Silberglöckchen. And then the stream, the water stream. Yeah. So there's this beautiful middle section. And then we go straight to the final section where it gets so... Uh, Quintessentially Beethoven. Einst a wonder, a wonder and bleed of meinem Graben. Wonder and bleed of meinem Graben. Eine Blume der Asche meines Herzens. And especially this deutlich shimmered, so quintessentially Beethoven. The obsessive. So when I think of leader, I really think of UC Burling as far as tenors um, goes. Later on, you can mention, you know, people like Fritz Wunderlich or even Baritons like Fischer Diskau. Um, but as far as Burling, I think Burling brought a Northern European sensitivity to singing. Mm. And that mm-hmm. is really valuable because there's nothing that's overdone. There's nothing that's too visceral, too passionate, too mm-hmm. loud. Um, there's nothing that is too something for him. Right. He's, he's really just ac- accepting reality for what is, I think. And it was an amazing reality to accept it because it's a, it's a godly voice. You know, It's just a beautiful voice all around. And I feel... Uh, you know, that you have people like him um, or like this Spanish tenor um, who happened to be a contemporary of Caruso, Miguel Fleta, who is famous for basically having done the most um, spectacular diminuendos or diminuendi mm. that we have ever heard. And the reason why you then kind of add tenors like him or like Burling to, to your anthology of tenors is because they specialize in, in something that no one else does as well as they do, you know? So when I think about how to do a messa di voce, which is basically how to diminuendo or crescendo to the, mm-hmm. to the extreme of the range, you know, to, 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 to grow or to decrease the volume to the extreme of, of the vocal range, 
I think of this guy, and especially to a passage like this. Which is a nice appetizer. <laughs> it always freaks me out when people do that. <laughs> but the main course is actually about to come. This is unprecedented. No one has been able to pull this one off. Goodness gracious. Do we want to talk about um, breath, <laughs> breath control? Phenomenal. Yeah, come and on. Vocal control. Phenomenal. But also gutsy as hell. He's just gone from this... Right, when something goes back up. And, and he really, just goes yeah. back up, which just is so daring. Yeah. Um, so when you think of this guy, whose legacy obviously is much more than um, fantastic diminuendo, but you think of a standard that's put that's been put out there. In other words, these are like in this in sports when I would, an athlete breaks a record, mm -hmm. you, you you could decide as an athlete if you want to go for their record if you think you can break their record but one thing you know for sure is that record is human, human humanly possible right. in other words someone has done it before you and the reason why i consider these people part of my giants bouquet you know this yeah, uh, yeah. this floral bouquet of giants is because with all the little things they have done they 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 show you that things are possible. For example, um, this Canadian singer, this Canadian tenor um, that we're about to hear, John Vickers, um, basically a Delmonico type of voice, a dramatic tenor, a, a mountain of voice and also a mountain of men, um, <laughs> famous for his um, reenactment of the roles. He got so much into the character that he was singing that one evening during a performance at the Met, there was someone who had a cough and kept coughing and coughing and he was singing a Wagner role and he was really into it <laughs> and he kept getting distracted by this cough. At some point, he broke out of character and he said, will you stop this damn cough, you know, in the middle of, <laughs> in the, middle of the performance. <laughs> That's how passionate he was, you know, and that shows through his voice. You know, um, we all know Handel's Messiah. We all know how beautiful it is, the Alleluia and all of that. And there are beautiful arias for tenors, for, uh, for, for contralto, for, for, for every, every voice type. And the, <clears throat> the tenor has a couple of beautiful arias. And one of them is Comfort Ye Every Valley. And, you know, being Handel, you usually hear it uh, sung by lighter tenors who have more of a Baroque, you know, style in terms of phonation and vocal production. Um, so you hear, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Sort of like a, la a, a light, you know, and I'm probably off pitch, but, um, yeah. you know, and then... Um, you know, I know I know John Vickers, and I and I love his voice. I love when he sings Otello or Andre Chenier or Aida, which which or Wagner, which was more his repertoire. But then you run into this situation where I, as a singer, I'm invited to sing um, Handel's Messiah Carnegie Hall, and I 
I'm learning, you know. Sure. Um, I, I'm I'm collecting all the recordings, and it's mm-hmm. and it's on Easter Sunday, and it's on the stage on oh, on, on on the big stage because yeah. there are three stages there. There's Wild Hall, there's Zanko Hall, and then there is the actual Carnegie Hall. So I'm like, oh, I really need to listen to all the tenors that have sung this aria and so many beautiful recordings. And then, oddly enough, a friend of mine, his name is Adam, said, have you ever heard John Beaker's singing Comfort Ye? Which would be the equivalent of saying, have you ever heard David Bowie um, singing um, Old MacDonald Head of Farm? You know, it's like, it's two things you just would never put together. I'm Uh like, John Vickers singing Comfort Ye Every Valley. He's like, yeah, Yeah, absolutely, check it out. And so I heard this, which moved every inch of my being because if you really think about the words and the words are in English in this case though archaic English um, you realize that he brings that solemn um, spiritual tone to these words that are comfort ye Comfort ye, my people. And then everything else that um, he says um, about, uh, you know, speak, speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. You know, the soul reset is a masterwork, by the way. I'm a, I'm a Handel fan, especially because he was really able when, when, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, music that can sound um, kind of repetitive, like Vivaldi. You know, you feel like, oh, there's a lot of music that sounds the same. But when... People like Handel and Vivaldi struck that inspiration chord. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just a you know on another on another planet and another level. And when I heard this, I just felt like, okay, this is a new revelation to me. You really don't need necessarily the right type of voice, um, a, a singer that specializes in this repertoire, to bring out the full potential of the text. And that is why I include. John Vickers and this recording in this floral bouquet that I have because this is a reminder of Luigi, it doesn't matter if it's a um, an aria or a song that's too heavy for you, too light for you, too low for you or too high for you just, if it, if it speaks to you, sing it with your mm. voice and make it make it yours, which I think is exactly what John Vickers does with this incredibly exciting reset. feel comforted by yeah. just the sheer Comfort. the sheer sincerity of yeah. the sound you it's know so expansive exactly yeah. and then especially here to turn a reset like this 
into almost like a sermon, a song sermon. Just Seth your God, Seth your God. So authority, authoritative, and then the the effusiveness that goes into speak ye comfortably. just so it's earth shattering in a way because you really feel some biblical characters just coming out of the Bible and mm. talking at you and cry unto her mm. that her warfare is accomplished That her iniquity is pardoned. Mm. So heartfelt. It's almost like he thought he was Isaiah or, <laughs> or you know, some some yeah, some sure. prophet. And then towards the end of the recipe, he really brings it home. Now, provided that. No one would let you do what Thomas Beecham, the conductor, uh, allowed, you know, John Vickers to do in, in this recording. No conductor that specializes in Baroque repertoire allows you to do this. But now, isn't this a way to basically bring this whole recit home and kind of electrify you on your seat for what's, what's a rather frothy place like every valley, but before... Every valley you hear this, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. When I heard the highway, I really thought, man, you made a highway with your voice, yeah, you that's, know? Yeah, that's very, yeah, very literal. So you get a, you get the feeling of, you know, as a, as, a, as a tenor, you could be a trailblazer only in the sense, even in the sense of you could show a new perspective. Uh, you could bring out a new way of seeing something, of singing something as old as Handel's Messiah, whereas now that I obviously have become familiar with the recording and I've sung it many times myself, if I run into someone, whether they're Baroque singers or they're opera singers who have been hired for the gig, whether they're singing at Carnegie Hall or somewhere else, when you run into someone who sings Every Valley, mm -hmm. the first question is, <laughs> have, you heard, have you heard the John Vickers rendition? Nice. And the answer is... Of course, how could you not? Like, you know, that's when you set a standard. And speaking of standard, the last one that I, I want to mention outside of the Italian realm of tenors and, and, and singing trailblazers, I want to mention this phenomenal Russian tenor, Sergei Lemon, um, sorry, Lemeshev, uh, who really, speaking of staying true to the aesthetic and the style of Russian opera, um, brought 
this quintessentially Russian color, this quintessentially Russian sound to the to 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 the tenor sound, so much so that even though now the um, vocal uh, style and the vocal aesthetic has kind of evolved in Russia, um, they they tend to focus more on developing really big powerful voices. Back in the days, um, a Russian tenor was really um, was really the sound that um, uh, Sergei Lemeshev um, would, you know, would make for us in a second. And what we are about to hear is the Indian guest song from Rimsky-Korsakov's Sadko. Mm. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece. I'm sure that the melody is somewhat familiar to many mm-hmm. of, of the listeners. Um, it, the, 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 the specialty of this piece is that it um, plays with a lot of chromatic skills. So there's a lot of um, half-tone singing, half-step singing. And I don't know if it's the the language, the the words, the sound of the words. There's a brightness to the sound. It's a really different style, a very different resonance than what we've been listening to, that's for sure. And resonance is a great word because you you got it uh, right away it's almost like the voice is supposed to sound a little like this yeah. a little bit of that yeah that like radio All of these chromatic scales, and these half steps. Yeah, it slips around. And there's so much beautiful Russian repertoire. Um, Peak Dam, Eugene Onegin by Tchaikovsky, Boris Gadunov by Mursorsky, and then of course Rimsky Korsakov with. Um, Sadko. But I wanted to mention Sergei Lemeshev because. To me, he's, he's almost like, and again, I don't mean the comparison as a way to diminish his uniqueness, but he's almost like the Russian skipa, you know? There is this sort of like, it sounds really easy, and I'm, I'm just putting out there an authentic sound, I'm just focusing on the words, but he does have a little bit of that magnetic spell that we heard with, mm-hmm. with skipa, you know? Just to say that, after a while, when you also familiarize yourself with so many tenors from so many different time periods and so many different styles, you kind of see like a common thread, which is the emotions you're trying to express and also kind of like the range of this palette that you can play with, right? It's it's fascinating hearing you talk about this because your depth of listening is so precise and so many of these singers have covered the same repertoire and so... As a result, you can really focus on the things that are different between them and come to appreciate, you know, the the different standards that each of them set for different pieces or different ways of singing. 
And that's really fascinating. It's not something that's very easy to do with a lot of modern music because <clears throat> people don't cover music in the same way. You don't get these multiple versions of a piece. Everyone kind of creates original music and then performs it. Going back and studying repertory, it's actually very similar to learning jazz, where、mm -hmm. you know everybody will play Body and Soul, and you listen to every version of Body and Soul, and then you realize like, oh well, that the way that you know Bill Evans played, the way that Bill Evans played it, the way that Miles Davis played it, like you really come to understand the artist because the repertoire is so familiar, and then. One person will play a version of Body and Soul that's the definitive version. I mean, Coleman Hawkins, for example,、mm -hmm. and you'll hear that and realize, you know, this is definitive and be able to articulate why, which I hear so many times over as you've gone through all these different singers. Well, I think you、um, absolutely centered the main issue, or I would say the the、uh, the main、um, challenge that you have is a performer who、um, is going to perform music that has been sung and. Recorded by many other singers,、yeah. and in most cases, singers that were more talented than you,、uh, <laughs> and certainly, you know, set a standard that's really high to match. The how to be original,、yeah. the 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 one million dollar question. So, in a sense,、um, I, what you just said really resonates with me because that research that you do, that、um, collecting、uh, versions and、uh, comparing, starting to compare them of the same aria sung by、um, one of my most favorite. Things to do was at the time we still had、uh, cassette recorders.、Mm -hmm. uh, one of the most favorite things for me to do was to put um, um, a to, to put together a collection of twenty、yeah. tenors singing the same aria,、yep. and I think that's particularly important. That kind of research is particularly important because you, as a singer, want to be original. You want to do something that has not been done before. You want to express in a way that's not been done before. It's not always possible because sometimes, as I as I've mentioned, in some cases. There is no other way to sing right, this line、right. better than what this guy did. You know, like I, I think you should just you should just go、right. with what、Sometimes、this guy. Sometimes it's fine. Sometimes、yeah. it's fine, right? But there are other times where you're like, okay, well, I've listened to twenty different ways of doing this, and I think that、mm -hmm. there is still an opportunity for me to be somewhat original or to put my own fingerprint there. And that is, that is how you answer the question, like, how can you be original? So, in a sense, while it's Also, fun at the same time to learn about all of these different tenors, the different ways of phonating, of producing a sound, of of breathing, of、um, supporting. You know, all all of the things that are happening, a different color of the voice, the different personalities, all of that. It's also a really important thing to do because. In a sense, you kind of want to know what's being done so that you could hopefully offer something new. And in the same way, a scholar who decides to embark on an academic career、uh, wants to know what's being written in that field because、right. hopefully they want to contribute some new ideas. But I would say that if there was one thing that I wanted to close with was going back to Caruso、um, to a to a song that he、uh, recorded for. Uh, the first time, a song that was written for him. It's an art song by Tosti called "L'alba separa dalla luce l'ombra," which is literally "The dawn separates、um, light from shadow."、Mm. And the reason why I think this is so fitting because a, we have to kind of end, you know, this journey, this extravagant <laughs> journey, tenor tenor extravaganza with the founding father of tenors, but also because. When I think of these、um, giants that、uh, we have played uh, today, uh, I think of people who set the standard 
um, between being a singer and being an interpreter, thanks to the standard that they set. These these standard setters are such that you really kind of know that if you can get close to what these phenomenal artists have been able to do, um, then you are headed in the direction of being an artist, of being an interpreter. Um, but if you are not familiar or if you uh, don't really um, take into consideration the standard that they have set, you kind of remain a singer, you know, you are not mm. necessarily an artist. So that is my, of course, my personal take. But um, I also think that this song is one of the most beautiful art songs ever written. And I just couldn't think of anyone better than Caruso to kind of end this carousel, this tenor <laughs> journey. <laughs> What I absolutely love about the song and the way he sings it, it's almost like he's talking to himself. At some point he says, I must die. I do not want that. And it's, it just catches you here. Mm. I just don't want to do that. And after this pretty upbeat introduction, he's talking about this sheltering in the night of life, in the warm hug of, of a maternal womb. And he refers to, to the maternal womb of, of the night, you know, when... As, as things kind of come to an end and he says but if I am not to survive you know if my, my blood is not to survive I would want for a dawn to come out of mm. of my blood and I would want an eternal sun to come out of my dream il sole eterno and when I think of Caruso I really think that what he started for all of us crazy tenors was a new dawn and an eternal sun. Thank you so much for this, Luigi. This has been wonderful. I'm, I really appreciate that you would take the time to share it all. And um, I'm just, you know, I want to talk to you about tenors forever. So I feel like there's so much more we can get into. But this is an incredible crash course in uh, both your musical history and the, the history of this, this style of vocal performance. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast, a pleasure, an honor, and I hope you can make sense of all of this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I definitely can. It's, um, there's going to be a playlist, of course, and I'm going to be doing a lot of listening. So, you know, thanks so much. 
And that'll do it for my conversation with Luigi Boccia. Wow, that was a real saga. It was so much fun. Thanks so much to him for coming on the show, for lending his time and expertise. And thanks to everyone out there for listening. I really hope that you enjoyed this. As I believe you all know, I am working on season five of Strong Songs, and there will be a new episode in the feed pretty soon. Uh, Very excited about that. And as always, if you would like to support the creation of this show, go to patreon.com slash strongsongs, or you can make a one-time donation down in the show notes. All right, that's all for now. Take care and keep listening.